Hello, this is Josh from Ottawa, the BFG, and here with Bowman over in Dumfries, Scotland. Uh, we're here to talk about the literary, I, I guess you could say, angle. Yeah, this is our second bonus episode as part of our Bond by Numbers retrospective, going back to our previous work on the literary uh, exploits or the literary pieces by Ian Fleming. And what we're trying to do every four or five episodes is just plug in a little bit from our conversations about the books. So the source material for these films that we're reviewing. Now, this is an interesting episode, Josh, particularly because there is no original source material for The World Is Not Enough or Tomorrow Never Dies. So we don't have quite as much in terms of, uh, we don't have quite as many stories to go through. Yes. So as Scott was saying, uh, The World's Not Enough, Tomorrow Never Dies doesn't really need any coverage because they're not Fleming from any Fleming source. Whereas uh, Fear Eyes Only and Man with a Golden Gun most definitely are. Man with a Golden Gun is, of course, uh, Ian Fleming's posthumous novel. Um, and uh, Fear Eyes Only is from a short story collection where the events of that story, Fear Eyes Only, and the other short story in there, Risico, were sort of compiled together to create the, the, I guess, the basic plot of the film for your eyes only. Successfully, too, I think. I, I think so, too. Yeah, I think they did a good job combining Risico, uh, the, the, which is like the smugglers, the Columbo part of the uh, narrative. And then, of course, the for your eyes only um, Hector Gonzalez, Melina Havlock re- revenge story. Yeah, uh, I credit them for that because it was a good decision. I think taking these stories and making them one. When we looked at this, when we looked at this film last month, I remember Josh that Jeff and yourself and myself were all on the same page about how the story was an improvement on some that we had seen already. Yes, and we've got the we've got that sort of return to earth that the producers were quite conscious of. They wanted to make the film a little bit more serious, so they went back after Moonraker into the source material. But yeah, this is going to be a chance for us to share with you guys, the listeners, um, some of uh, an earlier podcast that Josh and I did, not that early, only a couple of years old now, but uh, we went through all of the Ian Fleming novels and did full reviews on those. And as BFG rightly says, this episode is going to look at two short stories and the full-length posthumous novel. Yeah, that was, if you, I guess if you look at our podcast career, um, that was sort of like, you know, the untamed stallion that hadn't been broken in yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, I think I think by that point we were, um, we, we were, we were doing pretty well. I mean, we, we had a rhythm, we had a format, we had a scoring system, everything there that we now enjoy was, you know. Yeah, but I just don't think we were out in the open um, as we are now in, in comparison. So are we out to pasture? Is that what you're saying? We're not out to pasture. We're we're in the little corral. We're being, you know, we're we're uh, getting our exercise. You know, we're 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 meeting mares, that sort of stuff. So, <laughs> meeting <laughs> mares. Are we? Is that is that what we are? The podcast equivalent of a stallion that's met a mare. <laughs> I guess you could say that for a beauty of a kill. I suppose. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, look, Josh. Broderick Tibbet when you need him. Uh, it's it's very clear we're not going to get a segue into what we need to do. So let's just um, let's just canter over then to this clumsily. We looked at for your eyes only uh, a couple or a bit a month ago, but we didn't really talk at the time. Even though we did deep dive into the some of the source material, we didn't talk about Fleming's feelings of the stories at the time. And I know that you have, of course, a collection of Fleming's letters, not the you know not not actual copies of them. 
but uh, in a book, The Man with the Golden Typewriter, which uh, mm. I, a book I gifted you, I think, wasn't it, for Christmas a couple of years ago? Yeah, um, edited by Fergus Fleming. I, he's a Fleming relative. Uh, basically, it's um, a collection of all the letters that Ian Fleming compiled. Um, or there were, there were, uh, it's a collection of letters from Ian Fleming's personal letters to friends, to editors, publishers, fellow authors, that sort of thing about you know his publishing career of the James Bond novels. And uh, there's some really interesting tidbits in here and eye-opening as well and really shows you Fleming the man, you know, more so than just kind of like the celebrity mythos that he has behind him. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, very, um, it's a very fun read, but also there's also kind of some, some very kind of like, you know, wow, kind of stuff in here. It's, uh, it's very good. Okay, cool. Well, why don't we use some of this material then uh, to close out our introduction on this episode, the second literary gun barrel bonus for Bond by Numbers. And, you know, hopefully listening to the episode, we're going to try to get about an hour of content on the two stories from For Your Eyes Only. And then mm -hmm. we'll offer a little bit more than that on The Man with the Golden Gun from our full episode back on that show. So why don't you, Josh, uh, start off with a little bit of information about where Fleming's mind was or kind of how he was feeling about For Your Eyes Only through any of the letters that you've got there? Right. So this is a letter to William Plummer, who was a very close friend of Fleming. Do you have any um, information on Plummer that you can tell me? Well, or, or tell our friends at home, I should say. What we know about Plummer, of course, is that he was an editor who edited a good number of Fleming's books. Right. And Fleming dedicated Goldfinger, I think, to Plummer. I don't have that right in front of me, but I think Goldfinger was a book. He, he definitely dedicated one of them to him. Uh, but yeah, they had a, a working relationship and I think a soft friendship as well through the Jonathan Cape uh, publishing contracts and whatnot. Um, yeah. This is a letter that Fleming sent to Plummer. 12th of May, 1959. Following the strait I left, I delivered about two weeks ago and which will be waiting for you on your return. Here comes a nasty right hook in the shape of the fourth short story of The Bunch of Five. My suggestion is that we should put these four together in a book with the fifth quantum of solace in the middle of them and call it the rough with the smooth five secret exploits of james bond so just to interrupt you for a second the the original idea fleming had was to put the five stories together in what structure with the quantum in the middle uh no how he was is that he said how he wanted it i should mm -hmm. say i suggest starting with from a view to a kill yep which they did man's work okay that would that must be for your eyes only it must be, you know, just given the fact of the gender call out right, right there. That's right. Yeah. Then Quantum of Solace. Yep. Risico. Mm -hmm. And finishing with the Hildenbrand Rarity, which yeah, is a so, story that we discuss when we do License to Kill. So I guess Palmer just was quite happy with that suggestion because that's exactly the content structure of the book. Yes, he, he must have been because that, yeah, that's exactly how it was laid out, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah I'm looking at it right now. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, I have heard nothing from Michael on the first two you shunted onto him, but you might care to suggest to him that we could discuss the whole project when I get back from Venice, where I am taking Anne on Thursday, around June 1st. Anne is, of course, Anne Charteris, Fleming's mm. wife. Sorry to shovel these two heavy spadefuls on the old Beatles' back, but that definitely completes your stint for this year. So this is William Plummer's response, 13th of May, 1959. My dear I... I placed Risico on top of the mounds of typescript awaiting me and read it with my usual keen curiosity to see what you have written. The Italian setting makes a nice change. Italian, noted, not Greece. And the, sand, and the sandy purlieus of the Lido are nicely touched in. The business of the Grundig chair is adroit. 
I think Bond ought to have noticed it and smelt a rat, if not a Grundig. A nice moment when the pursuer is blown up, another when the central harpooner is seen to be Columbo. So we're getting very similarities there, too, with the whole beach sequence with Liesel yeah. and Locke and Charles Dance there. Another when the central harpooner is seen to be Columbo. Perhaps because Columbo turns out to be so cozy and cordial, the tension is much relaxed, and the climate is, to me, less exciting than it ought to be. Now, I think the movie improved upon that because it seems here in the book version that when we meet Columbo, automatically Bond is in a more comfortable spot and the tension of the whole drama of Locke and, and, and Christatos are a surrogate for the other villain, I guess, or the real villain of that story. Yeah. Um, the, the tension there was a lot stronger. Uh, and then, of course, but then once you know it's revealed that Columbo is a good guy and everything like that it kind of becomes a boring story i suppose and mm-hmm. i think the war background story and the stakes that were risen in the movie and i think the character drama as well with like um by having you know um this the, the heroine from the short story for your eyes only uh, grafted onto it and then throwing in the keel hauling sequence you know from live and let die i, I think that definitely probably made risico um, a much better story on film than it was on paper. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's right. I think the suspense was probably tightened up a bit for the film, but the story was really good too, wasn't it? It was a good little story, yeah. I remember I enjoying little... it, yeah. I do yeah, remember like it. It's nice, like kind of spy noir, I, I guess you could say. And just just because you mentioned the keelhauling sequence from Live and Let Die, uh, the reason that we're not touching upon that in this literary gun barrel episode is because we dealt with that as some source material in the episode on For Your Eyes Only itself. So if you if you're kind of keen to get that information, make sure you check out our episode on For Your Eyes Only, where at the end, as part of our source material dive, we go into it there. Yeah, well, one of our favorite episodes too. I'll just finish, I want to finish this bit on Plummer talking about uh, For Your Eyes Only here. Yeah, sure. I think it's some good points about, you know, book uh, novel crafting and whatnot and the editing process. Cool. So he says, basically, because the Columbo turns out to be so cozy and cordial, the tension is, is so much, is much relaxed and the climax is, to me, less exciting than it ought to be. In fact, I think it is the least exciting of a collection of short stories so far. Really? Even less exciting than Quantum of Solace? So it's one person's opinion, really. But in spite of the new setting, which I'm all in favor of, I feel that perhaps this story is a little too close to formula and not quite rich enough in those little sardonic or mundane inventions or details you use so well. What do you think he meant by that? I don't really know. I mean, I think of this as one of the better stories. I didn't have a lot to pick at with this story. And I remember when we reviewed it, as you'll hear, uh, we were quite favorable towards it. Maybe it just doesn't have that kind of like allure that the other Bond stories had compared in comparison, maybe. Because you think about it, Risico could easily have been like a couple years later, like a John Frankenheimer film, like uh, like The Train or mm. later in his career, Ronin. You know what I mean? Like yeah. those were the kind of movies that he that John Frankenheimer did. And Risico would have easily probably been one of those. I could see totally see a young Michael Caine starring like in in that role or something, you know. It's one, just one of those things that you seem like that it, that it's not really Bondian, I guess you could say. It's funny because you do reference Frankenheimer in the episode. You might not remember having done that, but you did. I'm sure I did. Frankenheimer's awesome, so why wouldn't I? <laughs> and, well, I mean, he doesn't. Plummer doesn't call it out, but maybe he was speaking about um, the Countess Liesel because I was never really in great celebration of her role in the story. It always felt a little bit ham-fisted. Yeah. The movie does a good job of making it feel less tacked on, and it's, I think her death is kind of used as a 
uh, oh, let's just hate Locke even more. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, Plummer mentions on the 17th of May, my dear Ian, man's work is most exciting and I've much enjoyed it. I enclose a few comments. I am passing the story on to Michael together with your plan for the book and your suggestion about discussing the project when you return. I like the order in which you have arranged the contents. The title is not, I think, electrifying. I hope you're enjoying yourselves very much. Don't step on any landmines in the preludes of the Lido. And if you and if you can think of a better title, you could perhaps use man's work as the title, keeping the subtitle about five secret exploits. So this is how I think Free Eyes Only came about as a, as a replacement title because it lacked the oomph, I guess, that Plummer was looking for. Yeah, cool. And so he there dropped the subtitle too. He dropped the subtitle as well. Yeah, Sim- simply stated, for your eyes only. And then, I guess that's that almost like oh, it was new, a new Bond novel. And then when you buy it, it's like oh, there's four short stories in here. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I, that's okay. I guess it's Bond. I, I I could see people having those same kind of feelings. Well, hold us in suspense no longer, Josh. What were Fleming's or indeed publishers' feelings towards The Man with the Golden Gun, this posthumous story? So this is him responding to um, Victor Waybright of the New American Library. Victor Waybright was, I believe he was a journalist who became a publisher, and he founded the New American Library. Yes, uh, yeah, after working for a time with Penguin Books, I think. So 7th of April, 1964. So Fleming died in August, right? Yes. Okay. Right. So this is, yeah, this, I think this is probably him, probably not in the best of health right now. No, he had had dropped his productivity quite a bit as well. Yeah. He's probably dealing with his pleurisy right now at this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My dear Victor, I have had your comments on the title of my next book, The Man with the Golden Gun. I had thought of Elgren's The Man with the Golden Arm, but am not right in thinking that there is no copyright titles. In any case, Elgrin's was in such a different vein of literature. However, I have two alternative titles, Goldenrod, both C-3PO, or number three and a half, Love Lane, to fall back on in the case of emergency. But heaven knows when I am going to get around to correcting the typescript and doing a certain amount of rewriting. I am absolutely deluged with junk from which I simply don't seem to be able to free up existence. So please be excessively patient this year. So is junk maybe like the phlegm in his lungs, maybe? Yeah, the death that was impending. The impending death, yeah, the, the Grim Reaper at the door. Yeah, because then it mentions the next letter. Uh, this is a letter to um, William Plummer again. And this, I think, is important uh, to talk about because while lit up in the pleurisy uh, in the England, in the King Edward Seventh Hospital, known as Sister Agnes, Fleming wrote to congratulate Plummer on the recently published diaries of Richard Rumbold, which have given him as an editor an extraordinary amount of trouble. Fleming also made clear that he was finished with Bond. Sheila Sua Agnes, 10th May, 1964, Saturday. I like how he referred to the hospital almost like as if it was like some sort of like French hotel or something like that. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, some posh rest home spa. Yeah, exactly. Maybe like, maybe like the one in Thunderball. Yeah. Uh, my dear William, alas, I am Gisant Parterre here for the past 10 days with another two weeks to go, pleurisy. I thought only ants got it, but no one will say how I feel I am. The usual mumbo jumbo. And in fact, I feel totally remiss, though not up, though not yet up to correcting my stupid book, or rather the last third of it, but I shall get down to it next week. And then you and I will plan whether to publish it in 65 or give another year's working over so that we can go out with a bang instead of a whimper. Your fine opus arrived just in time and saw me over the first three days. 
Oddly enough, on my first night, the night nurse exclaimed when she saw the picture on the jacket. She had been Rumbold's nurse at Midhurst in 1956. She had much liked him, but said he was terribly mixed up. Indeed. And his looks had gone. Whose who's wouldn't have? She remembered Hilda well. What a saint. Odd coincidence. I remember well at the Charming Cross. Was it three years ago? You telling me that this shower had emptied itself on your head, bales and cases full of letters and papers, and how I commiserated? Well, now time has passed and an infinity of labor, which you don't mention, of course, in your excellent introduction, and the work is done and the memorial stands. What a wonderful and good achievement. I read every word and shall now always remember this man I never knew or heard of. Echoes of Denton Welch, perhaps because the end of the introspection and Ceylon. What a monster that father was. One of the great ogres that you bring out in a few lines. Wish I had read my father's son. And Ronnie Knox, really? Did this foul deed come in Evelyn Waugh's biography? I bet not. Of course, I adored your occasional asides and intrusions, rather like a Zen master with his stick. I would like to photograph of how he was at the end, but that might, might have been unkind. Interesting his admiration for Paul Bowles, whom I think a cold-hearted bastard, but I can see that his compactness and discipline would have impressed R. Anyway, enough of these maunderings. I have my sensitive areas rubbed, bottom in hospitalese. Thank you for this 15 PC. I am better without visitors, but we will now we will gnaw a string of spaghetti when I get out. 1,000 congratulations on a beautiful, accomplished task. So that gives you a picture of Ian Fleming, I guess, towards you know the end there, in in, in a way. Um, not really excited about Man with the Golden Gun at all. I just want to get, it, or he wants more time to work on it, but is he so not feeling well that he simply doesn't doesn't it just frustrates him incredibly yeah he describes it as a whimper doesn't he and he doesn't want to leave and i I guess there's a sadness there but also a realization that this isn't his best work and he he's wanting another year perhaps knowing that he's not going to get one yeah it's kind of yeah it's almost like it's in the back of his mind you know Mm -hmm. but it's it's at least i suppose um it's good to know that he wasn't happy with it because it's a book that's much maligned and not being great, but you need to read it in the context of a man who wrote it just at the end of his career, at the end of his health, the end of his interest in the character too. So it could have been better. We said it at the time. Every Many who read it have said that, and uh, Fleming himself has said it. So that's a really good letter actually there. Yeah. I will say that I don't really know who Rumbled was, so that part's a little bit um, not jarring, but a little confusing. But I think it's more about... Uh, just the the tenor of Fleming's voice here in that particular um, letter and um, what his feelings are about the future and whatnot. So I just found it important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have another letter here, and this is uh, from Somerset Maugham, uh, a famous author uh, best known for Inhuman Bondage and other novels. And I believe, uh, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but didn't Fleming try to model the style of writing that he took for A Quantum of Solace? Didn't he try to model that after Mom's own short story style? That yes, I believe he did. I recall reading somewhere that 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 was one of his inspirations. Yeah, I can't quote you. I can't. No, it's fine, I, and I can't substantiate it either. I just have that in my mind for some reason, and it's a strange thing to be in my mind if it's not something we've come across together. For those at home, uh, please go to uh, our Facebook or Twitter page and just you know l- let us know if that's the case. If you know whether or not. Somerset Mon um, was an inspiration for Fleming's not writing of Quantum of Solace. Yeah, that'd be good. So, Mom was aged 88 and nearing the end of his life. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading from the book here. This, these are not my words. He wrote a sad note to thank Fleming for his latest, You Only Live Twice, which is, like, I guess, kind of like 
prior to Man of the Golden Gun, it's it's really it's the end of the of the Blofeld trilogy. Mm-hmm. My dear Ian, thank you for sending me your book. I read it as with all the others with great delight and excitement. It was very sweet of you to think of me. I was touched and much pleased. Forgive me for not having acknowledged it before now, but I have been very seedy and distraught. I just returned from Venice, but with the realization that my traveling days are over. It is a great grief to me. 88 years old and traveling at that time, I mean, that, 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 that's, that, that can wear out, wear out a lot of people, I'm sure. That's impressive. Yeah. I hope you meet before too long. I think of you with great affection and should like to see you once more. And this is his response to Somerset Mom. My dear Willie, a thousand thanks for your charming but rather triste letter of May 7th. Cease at once being seedy and distraught. Move about as much as you can, even if it's only short distances. And don't forget that today's news wraps tomorrow's fish. I have been seeding without... <laughs> don't, don't they serve like in the UK, like chips like in... Yeah, uh, yeah they do. I just I think that's quite a good statement. I'm sure it's not Fleming's own, but it's a good one. I have been seedy but without being much distraught. Pleurisy and shut up in Sister Agnes for two or three weeks. I shall be about again in a fortnight or so, and I'm going to try and persuade Annie that we might fly down to Nice and invite ourselves to you for a weekend, if you will have us. I will see that, that Annie did not exhaust you with her chatter, and as you know, I'm, a, I'm as quiet as a mouse. But we both long to see, particularly as you missed, your London visit last year. If you think this would be a good idea, please scribble Annie a note and command her to your presence. She is your slave and will do anything that you tell her to. Now, please don't treat yourself like a piece of Venetian glass. It is not your style at all, and how you have always had the courage and fortitude of ten, with all my affection, and then dictated by Mr. Fleming and signed in his absence. That was the next letter. So more and more you're seeing that occurring. Yeah, he's kind of fading away a bit from the effort of writing and corresponding. Yeah, and then I guess he has the thing where the pleurisy passes him, and, and he gets out, and then a couple of months later he's dead of a heart attack. Yeah, well, there you go. So that that's good. That's a good good insight there to have as we uh, as we introduce this bonus episode, particularly because a lot of it does involve the Mount of the Golden Gun and our review of it. Yeah, if you're if you're into Ian the Bond and particularly into Ian Fleming, I do recommend uh, the Mount with the Golden Typewriter, uh, edited by Fergus Fleming, uh, Bloomsbury Publishing. It's called Ian Fleming's James Bond Letters. Uh, so please pick it up. It's a really good read. And I, too, can recommend a book, and that's Matt Parker's book, Goldeneye, all about Ian Fleming's Jamaica, which uh, I read and used in doing some research for our show here, the Bond by Numbers show, when we dig into the source material. Also very readable, very enjoyable, kind of the whole aristocratic British class going to the West Indies and trying to trying to hang. Make colonialism great again. Make colonialism great again, or like with white knuckles, hold on to whatever little bits of colonial existence still are out there you know and it's um, of course GoldenEye is where all the Bond novels were written but it's good and that's a Windmill Press publication it could be worse he could have ended up in in, in India instead yeah he could have yeah and been part of that uh, well then the Bond novels wouldn't well yeah 52 right India got its independence that's right yeah 52 so that would have been a bit of a mess (laughs) if if he had stayed out there but many did I mean a lot did stay out there I guess we talk about India when, when we delve into Octopussy. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Octopussy is our next full episode, which is coming in just a couple of weeks' time. So we uh, hope you're looking forward to that. Well done on the introduction there, BFG. Anything you want to add then for our listeners on either For Your Eyes Only or Man with the Golden Gun before we sign off? Uh, well, we talked about Man with the Golden Gun, the film. I do, it's, it's a, uh, so I do recommend checking out the, the, the uh, novel if you're interested. Um, you'll be disappointed if you're expecting a kind of a Christopher Lee Scaramanga in this particular story. He's much more of, I guess, 
It's almost like he's uh, Benicio del Toro from License to Kill uh, and Scaramanga. <laughs> well, I would go even, well, in our episode, we referred to him as Snidely Whiplash. A little bit, yeah. But I kind of, but they mentioned that he you know him being Latin or whatever, and I think the young Benicio in License to Kill is a, is a good ex- kind of what kind of punk this guy is in the uh, as opposed to the Christopher Lee elegant version we saw in the film. There is some elegance to this guy, though. Like I suppose I, I, I disagree that I disagree that the literary Scaramanga is all punk. He is he's slimy and he's greasy, but there's a there's a there, there is like a charm to him. There's a, a a machismo charm to him. Yeah. He's not just yeah. a heavy. I mean, that's a big part no, of him. But No, it's true. But I'm just thinking, like, in terms of personality, though, that's what I'm more talking about. I'm not talking about in terms of prominence in the story, more so mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. in terms of personality. Well, For Your Eyes Only was a really good collection. This, The Man with the Golden Gun, was a great conversation. We had a lot of fun, but this wasn't a book that ended up high on our list, although we did both agree that there are features of this story that we could have seen working really well in a properly edited, perhaps more expanded draft. It did have GangsterCon 1965 or whatever, so that was, that was yeah, GangsterCon 65, <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Yeah, it did. Hey, it, all of this and more is waiting for you. So uh, if you don't check out the book, at the very least, listen to our review of it. Yeah. And, uh, and we do recommend, too, the short story collection, uh, Free Rise Only. Uh, the Free Rise Only, uh, the short story in particular, um, that deals with Melina Havlock, Hector Gonzalez assassination, and um, not in the Cold War kind of aspect as the film did, but it's, cra- it's grafted onto the film version quite well. And how Risico becomes the Colombo smuggler plot. They trade, I suppose, the Italian setting for the Greek setting, but it connects pretty well, in my opinion. Um, but you'll find both stories are very good on their own. Yeah. So a longer uh, introduction, perhaps, than was necessary, but hopefully you appreciated the context there of those letters and some of the info on the stories that you're about to hear us review from a literary perspective. in uh, the Fear Eyes Only collection, the eighth publication of Ian Fleming, 1960, I believe it was. 1960, yep. And this is coming after the very highly regarded, at least by the two of us, uh, seventh publication, Goldfinger. We both really enjoyed that novel. It's one of our top-ranked Bond novels so far. And so this change of pace with the short stories is really going to be interesting uh, to kind of get into with you uh, because... Neither of us have really shared our opinions about these stories yet. No, we haven't. So I'm kind of curious to see what one thinks of the other, you know, and yeah. uh, and and, and where we'll butt heads, and and where we'll we'll be able, and where we'll find, you know, uh, camaraderie in terms of uh, how we feel about these little these five little stiff drinks, uh, as the back of the book describes them. Stiff drinks. Well, the back of your book describes them as stiff drinks. The back of my book. Um, you got some weird like. Uh, Fu Manchu art with like uh <laughs> yeah yeah and and Taylor Swift on the cover isn't she or was that Goldfinger <laughs> no no this this chick kind of looks like Taylor Swift but basically <laughs> I got uh, I've got all the Fleming books in a in a Penguin uh, paperback collection is like a box set which I guess have um, brand new covers um, they were reissued in 2006 and they have been put all new covers onto them and the artwork is quite it's kind of retro pulp. Um, typically, uh, a naked chick, a near naked chick on the cover with 
a couple of illustrations and color schemes associated with the story itself. And so on the cover of this one, I've got a big bird, uh, two motorcycles, and a chick lying on a sunbathing blanket, it appears to be. That sounds a dangerous, a dangerous combination. I, I don't know. Remember, <laughs> there's something's going to get a good shot on at some point. That's right. Shit's coming. Just ask Doctor No. Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's a, a bit of a guano in here too, isn't there? <laughs> there's a little bit of guano. Anyway, okay. Look, yes, buddy. Absolutely. Let's um, let's dispense with the pleasantries. Um, Josh, before I get into information regarding the publication of For Your Eyes Only and its reception among the critics, as we usually do, is there anything you'd like to say? Well, I'm, I'm curious to see what the critics knew they had to say about this book at the time. Um, I'm going to go on a bit of a, on, on the front here and say I actually really enjoyed this collection as a whole. Okay. And I thought it brought a really interesting uh, look at Bond and at Fleming. And uh, I think in terms of, we, we mentioned Goldfinger, how, how we see Fleming improving as an author in terms of character and and whatnot and we're seeing really strong writing from him um i think through eyes only as a continuation of that kind of self-reflection that you see in fleming's work beginning with goldfinger in my opinion well let's get into it then Uh, this episode is entitled Bite Size Bond in Short Story Glory, and we are globetrotting with Bond here in this series of short stories um, that Fleming wrote between 1958 and 1960. Basically, although the book was published on the 11th of April in 1960 by Jonathan Cape, it was in 1958 that CBS commissioned Fleming to write episodes for a TV show based on the character of 007, who by that time was quite popular. Um, I see where this is going. Yeah, out, outlines were written, uh, but CBS canceled the project. They canned it before anything went to production. Fleming then later adapted four of these TV plots into short stories, and he added a fifth short story that he had written uh, just before, and that made a collection of five. And so when the book was published, it wasn't published of stories that were intended as short fiction. It was a series of TV sketches that were adapted into short fiction. And so it was really an experiment for Fleming. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of that feeling in, in this collection, at least for me. Yeah. Um, uh, experimentation, self-reflection. Yeah. And uh, how you mentioned them, how they were adapted as television series. I could totally see these as like, ep like kind of like, you know, episodic adventures in like a, a Bond TV serial. Absolutely. Yeah. That's how they were certainly intended. Um, there was 21,000, about 21,700 copies that sold out in the first printing, a hardcover by Jonathan Cape. And the United States picked up the um, publishing in 1960 in August. That was carried by Viking Press. Um, it was well received commercially, but of course, by this time in Fleming and Bond's career, uh, nothing he was doing wasn't really selling. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it really was like, by this point, everyone's just going to gobble up everything that he's doing now, right? Yeah. And that whole thing about, you know, that side where some critics were talking about the Bond ambience and this, the, these little stories are full of that Bond ambience. And it's, it's ambience, sorry. It's just, it's just one of those things where it's not so much of that, this is a story that Fleming writes, but he's able to capture an atmosphere that surrounds Bond in all of his stories. And each one of these stories, I think, really captures that, regardless if he's on the secret mission or not, if you know what I mean. I get what you mean, but let's just see if the critics agreed. 
Um, okay, yeah. So I'm curious to see what our, our usual Fleming contrarians have to say. <laughs> well, I've kept it rather short. I've only got four or five to share, but um, the guard. Well, I, I went to the regulars, the Guardian, the Times, the New York Times. Anyway, Francis Isles, writing in the Guardian at the time, um, argued that the stories were quote better than the novels, not without their weaknesses, but better than the novels on mass. The Observer, Maurice Richardson, our good friend, um, 007 mellowing a bit now, but the short form suits him well. Cyril Ray, writing in The Spectator, quote, Our hero seems to have lost, as well as any claims to plausibility, the know-how, the know-what, and the sheer zing that used to carry the unlikely plots along. Perhaps all that mattress pounding is taking it out of bond. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch, indeed. Um, Times newspaper, an anonymous uh, critic, the mood of For Your Eyes Only is a good deal more sober and perhaps weary than before. Don't know if I totally disagree with that. I kind of like where that anonymous guy's going. And the New York Times, Anthony Boucher, the self-proclaimed Fleming hater, has, although he has warmed up in recent days and in recent books to Fleming, says this, Fleming's style, quote, eminently smooth and readable even if bond's nice. triumphs even if bond's triumphs are too simple and lack suspense i kind of agree with mr boucher on that regard for the for some of these stories while i enjoyed them i did find a bit of a sort of a the endings the ending of of, of some of these were kind of very pat as, mm. as i would describe it i would say uh, pigeonholed mm, even better that that's a that, that that's yes absolutely do you know anything about, just before we get into the stories here, do you know anything about uh, th this Canadian filmmaking duo or team that's looking, yes. that's looking to do an adaptation of this? Can you, can you say anything about that? Uh, not only that, and not to brag or anything, I mean, if you live in Ottawa or in your, anywhere in the film community in Ottawa, everyone knows Lee DeMar. Uh, he, wrote, he, he, he directed his famous schlock uh, film called uh, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Uh, back in the 2000s, uh, early 2000s, which is based, was a story about Jesus Christ learning Kung Fu and coming back to the real world and uh, fighting evil and zombies. Wow. Anyway, so Lee DeMar and uh, a lot of people like him, Brett Kelly, etc., uh, they don't know it, but they're getting shout-outs here on a podcast. But uh, basically, they're, you know, they're, they like their B-movie schlock kind of, kind of film style, and uh, they've always been uh, doing these kind of projects. And from what I heard, when Lee heard that, that uh, the, in Canada, that uh, Ian Fleming is one of those authors who's past 50 years old in Canada and other countries where they're now, their work is now public domain, yeah. uh, it is now legal, if you wanted to, to film a James Bond story uh, in Canada. And that's and, what they're doing. Yeah. Well, they're the source adapt, material's there for it. Yeah, they're going to adapt for your eyes only. Uh, the short story the, uh, that Fleming wrote uh, attached to the for, for Your Eyes Only collection uh, based on a script, as you said, uh, about Bond traveling to Canada and sneaking into Vermont to kill some bad guys. That sounds really cool. Yeah. But the thing is, though, is I'm really curious because even though Bond himself isn't copyrighted in the characters, he's still going to, he still can't use the Iris, sorry, the gun barrel logo. Oh, he yeah. can't, you know what I mean? He can't use any of the, any of the, it's a very legal situation where you got, they got to be as close as adherence to what Fleming has on that page as possible. So obviously then artistic concessions are going to have to take some of the bond formula out of the visualization. Exactly. And that might denigrate it a little bit in some people's eyes because they're going to be looking for those signature things and they really can't do much. I mean, 
it'll be very it'll be very it'll be very, it'll be very interesting adaptation. I and mean, the guys are pretty good filmmakers on their own. They just don't have enough budgets, I think, to make anything uh, great. So, but if there's someone, but they might get a lot of f- funding to do this. So if they do, then it might uh, t- turn out you know differently than his other projects. Anyways. Okay, cool. Right. Well, I mean, I just seen that and I wasn't sure anything about it. So I figured if anybody knows what's going on in the Ottawa film scene, it would be the BFG. You were correct, sir. As have, much as I've been detached from it as of late. Have they been any, I mean, have there been any serious discussions about getting this thing off the ground? I mean, uh, not that I know of. All I know is that they, they, they are discussing on it. I saw a blurb in the paper about it. So we'll ah, see cool. what's, what's going on. A friend of mine, uh, he knows Brett Kelly, who's another th- filmmaker here in Ottawa, and uh, Brett Kelly um, knows Leonard quite well. So I'm curious to see if, if I could speak to him and see if he can find out anything for our listeners, uh, wherever they may be. Yeah. Well, if you do find anything out, let us know because that's uh, that's pretty cool stuff, especially given, as I was saying earlier, the source material here for the short story, which is largely well partially set in Canada and uses Canadian um, intelligence and equipment. And it's just really cool. Absolutely. And, and I think personally, um, I can see you as a, uh, a Cuban but gingery uh, Gonzalez. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that, Josh. Um, <laughs> I never really imagined myself um, being shot uh, and, and or you could be uh, Colonel Johns of the RCMP just to get, throw you an olive branch. I would prefer that because he, he was pretty cool. But He was. I wanted more of the Colonel uh, Johns. We're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're we are. pretty dangerous terrain, I think, if we're looking to avoid talking too much about the stories until we get there. The precipice, so, the but, precipice is coming up. We're like locked right on, on the edge of, of, of the cliff there in the film version. Well, why don't we just push ourselves over and into discussion of these stories? will get boring if we don't move on and talk about For Your Eyes Only, which is the second story in the collection. Um, yes. Right. I'll just really quickly go through uh, the gist of the story. You can fill in any gaps you think are important, but I think we're going to fill in all of our gaps when we do our angles, to be honest. So mm-hmm. basically, yeah, For Your Eyes Only is uh, <clears throat> it's, it's pretty cool. It's a story about, largely about, um, this guy named Von Hammerstein, who's a chief in the Cuban Secret Service, he's an ex-Nazi. No, <clears throat> pardon me. <laughs> Let's try that again. He's an ex-Nazi hiding in these, you know, a banana republic, which wasn't at all strange for a lot of these boys from Brazil, so to speak. No, definitely not. Uh, but sorry, go ahead. I want to mention too is that uh, what part of the Nazi machine did did he operate under? Uh, I don't even have a note of that. Yeah. The Gestapo. Oh, right, Gestapo, right. The secret police. Okay, that's probably how he's got himself a chief job in the uh, in the Secret Service then. Yeah, for the Cubans, which is really interesting because this is historical uh, presidents here is that, I mean, this is when, uh, this, is, this is very kind of interesting because we're in like Godfather Part Two scenario here where, if you recall, Michael is in Cuba and the revolution against Batista is going on. Like Castro and his boys are in the mountains and they're about to, mar- and they're taking... Uh, the Cuban government away from Batista. So we're in this situation here where the fall of Batista and we learn that this guy, this tyrant Batista, used actually Gestapo officers and German officers in his, in his government. I thought that was very 
uh, revelatory mention that uh, Fleming had there. It was reflective for sure and very yeah. political. And I don't appreciate, and I guess you don't either, simply because of you know the time in which we grew up and now are living. We don't uh, we don't appreciate all those little touches, maybe, but we can only look at it historically. Uh, absolutely, and I think it's, it's an interesting comparison to like you know Batista and Castro, and at least Castro didn't use Nazis, I guess, in his uh, in his defense. In his regime. In his defense. Anyway, this guy von Hammerstein, um, when the heat when the heat and the attention kind of shifts towards him, he gets um, he gets a little anxious, a little apprehensive, and so he goes out and buys properties from people that he likes in more secluded parts of the Caribbean and around the world, and uh, that's kind of how the story opens. One of his little guys, uh, one of his officers, Gonzalez, uh, shows up to the Havelock's home, and this is a beautiful house um, that von Hammerstein wants, okay, essentially. He's he's hiding um, in, the, in, in Cuba, working there under... Castro and now he wants out and he wants this house um, to protect him basically in his secrecies and whatnot and so he sends Gonzalez and these two hired hands to go um, I guess see through the purchase of the home um, but they use force when the Havelocks say no we don't want to sell it and it's quite a, in a quite a ruthless moment the Havelocks are killed uh, yes. by Gonzalez it's it's really graphic um, not graphic like blood everywhere but graphic in the sense that it's cold and it's very cold, impersonal yeah. um, anyway that's that's kind of how the story starts and <clears throat> we learn later um, after the kind of opening scene much like a pre-title sequence in Bond where the Havelocks are murdered we learned that um, M was best man at their wedding and that uh, he is asked Bond in not so many ways, but in exactly this way, to go take out this guy that killed his friends. And so it's very much a personal vendetta that yes. Bond is sent on. And he's given intel that tells him that he, Von Hammerstein, is located at Echo Lake, which is a secluded resort um, in the northern part of Vermont, near the Canadian border. So Bond... Yes flies over to Montreal, he uh, hooks up with the RCMP officer there who we'll talk about in a few moments, he gets himself all kitted out for a camping trip and with these really interesting um, pencil scribbled maps he finds his way to Echo Lake uh, but he, before he pulls the trigger on, uh, on the kill shot, he's interrupted by um, Judy Havelock, the daughter of the Havelocks who is out on her own mission to kill uh, Gonzalez and Van Hammerstein. And so basically, yeah. uh, the two of them end up um, teaming up, and uh, it's not a happy team up at the beginning, certainly, but they manage to make the kills and they escape. Although Judy gets shot, she seems to be okay. Uh, they escape again through the woods. I mean, I, I'm glossing over a lot of detail, but that's, yeah, that's basically the gist of the story. I don't want to waste too much more time nope. talking about it. Nope. Um, I will just say this. Uh, before I hand over to you to start the angle, I thought For Your Eyes Only was a really good story. And I thought it was particularly well written. I was interested. The suspense I found was quite um, engaging and believable. And I really liked the personal connection between Bond and M here. How he's not happy doing the job, but he's doing it for the greater good and for, <laughs> for his friend. And then he justifies it really interestingly for himself too. Um in killing Gonzalez, but I, I'll say nothing about that just now. No, no, no. I, uh, yes. Okay. Well, I guess I'll continue off with you, with, with your setup there. Uh, you set the stage, that's for sure. 
So looking at the angle on this, uh, the adversary and allies, um, well, adversaries, of course, we have uh, von Hammerstein, you know, the, the ex-Nazi working for Batista's security services. Uh, so this is a guy who presided probably a lot of over a lot of people's disappearances. So let's just say that. And Gonzalez is sort of his right hand in, in that regard. Balding, strong, uh, hairy German type. Um, you don't really get a, a big impression of him just by just by reputation and his deeds that, that are connected to him. He becomes an imposing figure in this story and someone who we are identified and emotionally connected to in terms of Judy about and, and you know, to what the, to what they did to the Havelocks, the brave Havelocks uh, that and, 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 you know, that this, this this retribution, this needs to be carried out by Bond. So he comes across as as a as a as a villain for sure in this. But maybe a little less developed than I would have. I, I think he, he probably needed more of. His, I think he. Sh- I think he should have had more of a scene. Mm-hmm. So to me, Gonzalez takes more of the president as the lead villain of the story, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. He's he's the tree. He's the hand that pulls the the, the trigger for Gonzalez right? for um, Hammerstein, uh, von Hammerstein. So uh, to me, you know, with his uh, smiling all the time during when he's talking to the Havelocks and that yeah. greasy kind of little slick. Uh, you know, th- a thing about him, cold, but uh, with its th- with this facade of friendliness to him at the same time. Yeah, he's smarmy. Uh, smarmy, yeah, exactly. Uh, he comes across as more of a character than Von Hammerstein, in my opinion, because of this. Yeah, no, I agree with you, man. Gonzalez is definitely uh, the one to follow here in the story, and yeah. um, I, he's a piece of work, as as they would say. Yeah, he's a piece of work. Um, yeah. I, I like. Um, I like. Colonel Johns, the RCMP character that Bond meets up with, he both for the Allies. Yes, absolutely. He's likable right away. He's almost like a Canadian Strangways or something like that. That's how I kind of thought of him too. But both he and yeah. the Commissioner, uh, although the Commissioner kind of, um, well, he defers to John, um, to Johns. He's he's really efficient. Both of them are efficient in establishing and kind of supporting this cover story that they give Bond with the hunting licenses and all this type of stuff. And the Commonwealth working together. That's it. And Johns even goes as far as instructing Bond on where to obtain appropriate clothing, the kinds of things he should have, you know, what kind yeah. of ham sandwiches he should eat. I mean, it's all – it's a little bit doting, but it shows his understanding of the environment and the well, outdoors, he's, he's, which he's, I think he's is Canadian. good. He's Canadian. He's friendly, right? Exactly. <laughs> and a Canadian knows what to take with him in a packed lunch for the outdoors. Absolutely. Anyway, um, all this though does kind of make one – some wonder, like how how often in offices around government buildings and embassies, you know, are, are like chats like this and plans like this going on. It's true. I kind of like the casual thing of it. Like, you know, I live in Ottawa, and you go downtown into the government, you know, to like the RCMP headquarters and other government buildings there, and they're very grayish buildings that were constructed, you know, after during the war, after the war. I'm not talking about the Parliament block, you know, the older part of, of Ottawa. Of course, yeah, but. Uh, I'm just saying is, is that you, you walk into these places and they're very sterile government institutional situation. You see like a front couch there where Bond would have sat when the officer came out. And here there, you, you walk in and these two guys are just discussing something. I don't know. Like I'm, I've got my iPod on and I'm going to like walking through and I don't know what those guys are talking about. Government crap, I guess. Nope. These guys were basically discussing uh, the assassination of a, of, a, of, a, of an ex-Nazi, you know, like yeah. you never know. And then, and then it's like, and when you're done, just burn the map. Exactly. Anyway, right. So my my, my score for uh, adversaries and allies here was a four out of five. Four out of five for me as well. I would also include 
to Judy Havelock as part of the Allies as well in that regard? Mm, I, I didn't. I, I put her in the, the girls just because I don't think Bond needed her there. Um, she didn't really – she took his hit. She didn't really you know, give him anything. Um, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, that, that, that's – That's how I read it though. I mean that's just yeah. how I read it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, in, in terms of narrative, um, I, I don't know how realistic the killing of the Havelocks would have been. You know, like a, a, a criminal officer looking for a safe haven, so he shoots up real estate owners to who, who who say no, you can't buy our property. But it's it's pretty engaging and it's very master villain like. Um, and it's certainly it's true. Yeah, but... I, it's not necessarily believing. But I love how the opening is like a pre-title sequence before M explains the case. So I mean, it's very yes. cinematic. And I also love, I don't know if you picked up on this, um, but I think maybe because I was thinking cinematic, I, I did pick up on this. Like um, the section starts off with birds and ends with birds, right? Uh, yes. The Dr. Hummingbirds that are being discussed. Um, and then the There's bird a lot is, of nature in this story as a whole. Yeah, a lot of nature. And then law of the jungle or law of the forest, I guess. At the end of the killing, the Havelocks, right? All that you can hear in the background are like the sounds of lawnmowers. And then the beginning of the London scene, we got this good jump cut where the editing tells well, I say it's editing, but it's kind of like, you know, you Bond can hear or M can hear the mowers outside um, you know, outside the the office. And I, I just think that's pretty cool. Those little touches of continuity, I think we're good. The mowers sort of being like uh, in, indicating, I guess, uh, British civili like uh, civilization in, in that respect, right? And yeah, and the, the birds more connected to like the forest and or, or to the tropics in that way to, to nature. Yeah, um, and nice writing too. You know, stylistically, I think this is a much better written story than From a View to a Kill. I just want to I just want to read this one little section. This is basically where Bond is deconstructing, uh, justifying the motive and the purpose, and it's pretty convincing stuff. Now Bond realized why M was troubled, why he wanted someone else to make the decision. Because these had been friends of M. Because a personal element was involved, M had worked on the case by himself. And now it had come to the point when justice ought to be done and these people brought to book. But M was thinking, is this justice or is this revenge? No judge would take a murder case in which he had personally known the murdered person. M wanted someone else, Bond, to deliver judgment. There were no doubts in Bond's mind. He didn't know the Havelocks or care who they were. Hammerstein had operated the law of the jungle on two defenseless old people. Since no other law was available, the law of the jungle should be visited upon Hammerstein. In no other way could justice be done. If it was revenge, it was the revenge of the community. And so Bond then tells M that he's not going to hesitate. And so I, I, I kind of like the way that, yes, it's personal, but Bond also makes it a job. And he justifies he the motive so that he can look at it from an employment standard. I I, I, I I do like that reflection. I do like him realizing that, you know, like this is clearly like a dirty uh, mob, kind of like not not like mob war, but it's it's old school. It's old age vendetta going on here, regardless of the apparatus of the, uh, you know, of the British Secret Service or of these gangsters and whatnot. These are people, you know, like you think of like, you know, with the gangsters and the various turf wars they always have. And there's always bloody retribution and paybacks all the time. And yeah. th and now, you know, we have Secret Service taking part of it. But we know these things did happen secretly behind the scenes, you know, mm -hmm. in this regard. Totally. So, yeah, um, for example, uh, there's, uh, the, the, the series The Americans really shows, for example, how if, uh, if, a, if, if an American agent is killed by KGB operatives, 
there is bloody retribution that does occur immediately afterwards. And these people who are working on our national defense and uh, protecting us, you know, from 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 uh, from the evil Russia, they they look at they took a blind eye to any of the brutality that their own officers use against these enemy agents. So it just goes to show you that um, even in, uh, in in a rigidly controlled uh, ideal kind of uh, government scenario, you're going to get this law of the jungle regardless. Hmm. Eye for an eye, as, as Bond says. Eye for an eye, jungle politics. I mean, it it's ruthless, but it's logical, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Now, one thing I want to mention to you about the Havelocks uh, is that you mentioned the unbelievability of the situation. Well, the I, I said I, I said I don't know how realistic their killing would have been. True, true. I mean, like they don't think there would have been fallback on that, you know. Like it just kind of seems like uh, putting a target on, on yourself for no particular reason. Maybe they didn't know how connected these British people were, you know. Like they didn't know that this guy was the best, you know, that that the, the head of the British Secret Service was their best man at the wedding. So maybe, yeah. they, they, you know, like, and they would have known who M was anyways, right? Like, they wouldn't know his identity either, so... No, I guess had... it, yeah, I guess it, it's possible that they wouldn't have rated them any more than just a rich bunch of landowners. Absolutely, and, and, uh, and you know, and they could have, they could have used anything, blame it on the locals, any kind of maneuver would have, uh, occur, you know, that, that they could have used to swing it outside of their suspicion. I mean, that's what could have been done, but in this case, it wasn't because this this went too up too up the chain, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of like Clear and Present Danger, you know, where uh, by Tom Clancy, where the president has a personal vendetta against the drug cartel because they chopped up his corrupt uh, friend. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but I guess yeah. this this obviously predates that story, and oh, absolutely, and I'm sure, sure that I'm sure that you know some of this is steeped in Fleming's own experience of having heard stories, you know, yes. during wartime and, you know, knowing as he did in top office officials that uh, may have had these sorts of things done. I mean, who knows, right? What do you think, um, in your opinion, what was it that made Havelock realize that he was going to die and he just said no, which is because this is my land that my ancestors have been here as long as since Cromwell, you know, uh, Cromwell gave us these lands and we're not going to leave them. Do you think there was that kind of stance? I don't think so. You know, it's funny. I kind of read it as though he was just so stuffy and so full of uh, self-worth that... Well, that's what I think that whole thing about. I think it's because, you know, like his his family's been there for generations, you know, since, as he mentioned, land given by Cromwell. Maybe he knew Honey Ryder's family. (laughs) Um, Maybe. We have another Cromwellian descendant here. Um, (laughs) Maybe there could be a connection there. Who knows, you know? But I, I just felt like he, he was almost <clears throat> staggering in disbelief that this was going to happen. Like, he, he wouldn't believe until the gun was pointed at him that he was going to die. But, you know, the kill was, was pretty pretty brutal. Oh, it was. Very cold, as, as you said. Well, uh, so narrative, you gave a four? Uh, n- no, I gave a four for um, the adversaries and allies. I gave a 4.5. Okay. I was a I was a four on the narrative initially, but um, now that I think about the story again, because I passed up the other three that I read afterwards, and I'm thinking it now in comparison to a view to a kill. I think I'm a four point five on uh, on the uh, on the narrative as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm skipping over a lot of what I liked about the story, which wasn't necessarily the the plot, but the style. I, I thought that um, you know Bond breaks 
and Fleming breaks from exposition to reflect on the profession of killing. And um, there's that, you know, that whole Casino Royale scene that you really liked where Bond was talking to Mathis in the hospital, right? Yes. The, the There's like a similar moment here where Bond reflects on death and professional killing and things like that. And he, he takes these breaks sort of all like the time. The acidity and malaise that he feels at the beginning of Goldfinger after his operation in Mexico, right? Saying about how like strength, like when that Mexican uh, drug dealer died, it was his soul left his mouth or whatever. It was like the, the greatest thing to in Mexico or something like, greater than all yeah. of Mexico or something like that. Yeah, there's like something it's, like it's that. It's that malaise that he feels, I think, in the job. I also liked his Zen-like moment. And you get moments of this in, in all the Bond books, and in this particular, where Bond just kind of like just breathes in nature. And you can tell that he's just more than just a killer and a mercenary like for the government. He's actually uh, like a hired gun for the government. He's actually like a human being in, in his own way, you know? Mm -hmm. And that whole scene like where he's getting ready to, to you know, to take out uh, Von Hammerstein there and he's getting his sights all lined up and, you know, trying to get a good view and he's talking to chipmunks, you know, and he doesn't want to scare them away and all this kind of stuff. But I, I like that little Bambi moment. It was good. It is cool. I'm going to say something about that in just a second when we get to locations. But uh, yeah, I gave a 4.5. Um, so yeah, we're kind of seeing the same story here and there's a lot of good writing in this one and it, yeah. it moves well. It's well paced. Overall, this also feels like a realistic mission and I like that. Um, girls, let's, let's, um, let's, let's move on to Melina. I'm sorry, uh, Judy. <laughs> Judy, yeah, Ju <laughs> Judy Havelock. You know, I like how Judy finds the killers the old-fashioned way, and she's obviously clever enough to sneak upon Echo Lake without being detected. She also gets the kill shot and is a little more assertive than expected. Although she does succumb to, you know, she, she's quite assertive and quite nasty at first, and telling Bond, you know, I'll put an arrow through your head and all this type of shit. And then Bond, Bond has no respect for it all. Either. No, no, like, no. Bond doesn't. He treats her with the same misogyny that he does whenever he meets a girl that's going to interfere with his work. Um, but yes. then, of course, she softens up to him at the end. That was a little bit lame, and yes. uh, took a, I took away a bit for her from that. Uh, I thought she was cool, though. I liked the assertiveness, especially coming after um, the the uh, what's her name from um, Marianne Russell from from View to a Kill. Yes, I thought I thought she was a good character. I like how she took. The situation into her own hands. She was a hell of a lot better than uh, Masterson from Goldfinger, that's for sure. Um, yes. I gave her a four. Okay, I was three point five, but I'll stay with three point five. I think I'm satisfied with that. Uh, okay. I didn't like. I didn't like. I really liked her at first, and I her. They, they introduced her really well, and I was. I was. I was glad to see that Melina Havelock wasn't just a creation of the TV sh of, the, of the film. So yeah, yeah. I, I was. I, I appreciated that uh, very much. So, but. I still, I, I, her, her, her falling into Bond's arms and basically losing her cool during the firefight after she got the gumption to kill off uh, Hammerstein and and get that perfect shot, and then she was done and let Bond handle the rest. You know, like, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. That really kind of ruined it for me in that regard. I guess I'm looking through it through a modern um, lens here, and you know, where I've seen a lot of strong female characters being portrayed in other texts, so. It was disappointing for me in that regard, so I'm going to stay at my 3.5. No problem. Uh, well, I think you're not unjustified because we have seen stronger female characters than her, uh, you know, the way they stand up to male authority. Yeah, I do like, though, that, that she was a badass, not because, you know, she was raped as a, as a, as a young woman or something like that. But yeah, she was, exactly. But because she had a legitimate reason to do what she was doing and 
you believed her story and, and what she was done. And you, we identified emotionally with her because we, we saw her parents get gunned down so coldly, you know, by these assholes that if Bond says, you know, this is the law of the jungle and this is for the community, you know, then who better than to take justice than, than the daughter, you know, of, 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 the, of, of, the, of the people who were murdered, right? Exactly. And we're, we like her for her own merit and for her own sake instead of some backstory that makes us sympathize with her. Exactly, but then again, then she's torn down again from she the is. pedestal yeah. by be by being complacent to Bond in the end. Yeah, and that's the formula, isn't it? That's coming to work because it's almost like Fleming says, "Okay, I'm giving you the strong character again, but she can never be stronger than me." <laughs> exactly. You can never admire her more than the guy she needs to fall in love with, uh, and the man has to at you know at some way the man has to take charge and and win it all. So. Yeah, you know, we've been here before, Josh. Uh, I'm going four. Stick to four. You're on your three, five. That's fine. Let's move on to locations. Yes. So, fire on. So we got Jamaica, Ottawa, uh, the Vermont Wilderness, the Echo Lake location, all were realized quite vividly. Jamaica with its with the parrots, you know, in the garden uh, at the uh, Havelock Estate, uh, the mowers in the background, as you, as you described. Then, you know, you cut to, like, London and its institutional formality and and whatnot, and, uh, you know, where a lot of the jungle is being applied here in office buildings where Emma's handing out execution orders to Bond. And then, you know, you jump to uh, Montreal and then to Ottawa. You get a bit of a description of downtown Ottawa, the government area. I kind of was hoping for some, like, Bond getting his supplies or getting his sandwich at, like, I don't know, like, Darcy McGee's. I was just hoping for, like, some sort of Ottawa nod. But I didn't quite get what I was looking for. It was a little too vague there, so I was a little bit disappointed. Well, so I'll allow Lee DeMar to flesh out that scenario for us in the film version. I, I, I'm going to interject on I'm just going to say this, that we've read enough of these books now to know when Fleming doesn't like a place, when he doesn't compliment a place. Uh, so in the, the fact that the Canadians get by here with great respect and efficiency <laughs> is, I think, compliment enough. Well... Fleming, I believe, had something to do with Camp X when they were training intelligence officers over there in World right. War II. Okay. So I'm sure he's been to Ottawa more than once. Well, he wouldn't have had his protagonist rely on the authorities and respect, because Bond does respect the efficiency of the authorities, and he finds them helpful and kind of kind of cute, but finds them helpful and knowledgeable. And I think that's as, as, as good a compliment as Fleming's going to give a foreign power. And the Echo Lake location was pretty neat too, like the whole compound. And yep. apparently this was based off someone uh, that Fleming knew. He had a, a similar place up in Vermont. Yep. Yeah, he spent a couple summers there, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you 100%. Um, I, I really like the description. It gets, it does get a little ridiculous. I remember when we were reviewing Live and Let Die, you were saying how, you know, if this was in the forest, Bond would be fighting a bear and a raccoon and everything. And, and we get every goddamn woodland creature in the world, right? But but that's okay. I mean, it, it's it's just kind of it's just kind of fun. And and the the autumn colors are described really nicely. The road, the the trails, the trees, the the wind, even the quietude of nature. This is a really nicely written story, and the locations help emphasize that. I went four point five for five. I don't know why I didn't go five. Um, because I like birds. I like tropical. You know, I love Canada, the border crossing. I love you know, New England. I mean, I don't know why I didn't go five, but there was something holding me back. So I went four or five. I'm, I went four or five as well. So 
All right, cool. Uh, equipment. There's the Savage 99F rifle with the scope, the smuggler's map, which was really cool. That was meant to be destroyed immediately. Even something simple like the smoked ham sandwiches, the glucose tablets, crossbow, yes. hunting licenses, the permits that Bond needed. All of these items are really utilitarian. You know, they're very really, low they're tech, pretty, but useful. Very low yeah. tech, yeah. But they really helped to reinforce, for me at least, a believability factor in this story. And I gave the equipment a four out of five. Yeah, I, I was going four on on equipment. Uh, as I said, it was low tech, right? So yeah. uh, four is definitely good. And don't forget Judy and her cross and her crossbow story about her bow and arrow, and uh, also Gonzalez and his men with their Tommy guns, very old school again, right? So, yep. And I, I can imagine that, like from their distance, that the Tommy guns weren't hitting it, managed to hit them at all because those wouldn't be so great from like uh, far away, you know? Well, the story hit the same marks for both of us because uh, there's only a half point in the difference. So. Uh, you were 20.5 and I, I went 21 for um, for your eyes only. Risico, you want to move on? Um, so basically, Bond is on assignment in Italy on a joint MI6 and CIA investigation of the trafficking of opium and heroin into the UK. He meets with Christatos, Aristotle Christatos, the CIA informant in the trafficking business who points out to him the re restaurant owner, Colombo. Now, by the way, I was going to say this, that he is meeting Christatos in this restaurant, which is owned by Colombo. Uh, I, I, I just thought I'd mention that. Um, Christatos gives Bond all the dirt on Colombo that he runs the machina of uh, drug smuggling through Europe. On top of a moderate fee for his services, Cristado promises the information only if Bond is to execute the head of the, of the operation, um, which is, of course, Colombo. Bond makes contact through Liesl Baum, an Austrian national who is Colombo's mistress. Using an opportunity where her and Colombo have a public row, Bond charms Liesl into meeting her. The rendezvous occurs on the beaches of the Lido Peninsula, just outside of Venice, where upon meeting her, Bond is ambushed by Colombo's men. Bond is knocked unconscious and wakes up on Colombo's sailboat, the Columbina, where after meeting Colombo, he learns that he is a black market smuggler only, and that his Cristados, the, the man who sent Bond to kill Colombo, is running the drug operation in truth. So joining forces with Colombo and his crew, Bond spearheads the assault on a warehouse jetty at Santa Maria. Where after a vicious firefight, the warehouse gives up its cargo, rolls of paper hiding heroin. Cristado attempts to blow the place up, but Bond chases him off, and as he's escaping, finishes the villain with a full with with a with a well placed with a few well placed bullets through the windshield of his car. Colombo thanks Bond for his assistance, and Bond manages to end the drug smuggling operation of heroin into England for the meanwhile. Uh, Liesl Baum wishes to see him again, apparently. So uh, for another rendezvous of a different kind, uh, which Colombo... <laughs> yeah, that was weird. The consolation prize, I guess, in a way. Uh, yeah, so that's basically the rundown of Risico. You know, that's a very streamlined description of it, but uh, it really, really, really describes, uh, details a very uh, fun and adventurous little yarn, in my opinion. It's a good adventure, isn't it, really, at the end of the day? Yeah, it's almost like a good, like, John Frankenheimer-esque kind of, like, story, you know, like Ronin or something like that, where it's all really taut and put together and, uh, like, almost like French Connection in a way. Like, it just, 
it's just a really well laid out narrative and uh, it was exciting and suspenseful all the way through in my mm -hmm. opinion yeah and earlier when i was talking about how flashback and misdirection um foreshadowing these things can be used if more effectively and are used more effectively this is this is what i was thinking about because the the use of particularly um i don't know if you made a note of this or not but i i really loved the way that the dining chair was used in that whole scene yeah, the dining chair was great. How, like, you're thinking, like, why are they moving the dining chairs for in the background? What, what is this detail for? I mean, obviously, you know, those are familiar with literary theory and more so nowadays in, in reading books, TV shows, movies and stuff. Uh, so when something happens there's a, in a story, one of those things that happens for a reason because they're showing, they're devoting attention to it. That's right. But the way that Flame was able to kind of veil this, the, the chair moving around for whatever reason by having these other people in the background paying attention to what's going on, mm -hmm. he did a great job at misdirection there, in my opinion. He did, yeah. And, I mean, the whole first 15 pages are, uh, of this story is misdirected because we're meant to see Christatos as the one to trust and he's the one that Bond is liaising with and Columbo's the guy that needs to be taken down because he, of course, is the, the pipeline into um, uh, the heroin problem, right? That's right, exactly. Um so I guess we'll just kind of go into the angle on this right right away. I'm going to kind of dive into it. That's okay. That's fine. Yeah, I just want yeah. to. I just I just want to do um, one little readout here of. Uh, oh, okay. If I can, of the the flashback. Um, I think it's here towards the beginning. Uh, after the opening scene, kind of where Bond is talking to Christatos, and the two guys are kind of checking themselves out and seeing whether or not this is a uh, you know who, who's kind of, it's kind of like. A, you know who's bigger you know what i mean yeah exactly um we we get this flashback to uh london where m had sent for bond and apparently is in a really bad mood right uh, yes the state of m's temper was also explained there was nothing that made him more angry than having to divert his staff from their primary duty this duty was espionage and when necessary sabotage and, and subversion Anything else was a misuse of the service and of secret funds, which God knows were meager enough. So M isn't particularly happy having to send Bond out on this mission. And that flashback to give us his impression of the case, I think, is really useful. Whenever Fleming does those M scenes, they're engaging and they kind of ground the story in the realism that you're expected to come across. Absolutely. You get that bureaucratic I, I, um uh, dissatisfaction you know from him in that regard and you get to see that the position that the, that of the organization that bond works in within the and how it relates to the real world and whatnot and right now drug smuggling is a big thing at this time period and especially going into the young kids you know in in, in london and whatnot uh, yeah. is opium and it's an important issue but m is like saying well that's great but at the same time this is what we're for you know it to me it just shows a lot of character in terms of his of his, of m himself and I think just as, as as MI6 as a whole, you know, and where it stands and how Bond is part of that apparatus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I I like that Christatos is playing Bond off of Colombo in trying to get Bond to eliminate his target for him. Yeah. I, I was, it was, when I was hearing Christatos talk too, um, I, you know, like you can actually picture, you know, like, you know, Julian Glover in Free Your Eyes Only, you know, talking to him in front of the ice rink at the in this in the sequence. It's so smooth and slick. And you can see why Bond likes this guy right away. He's a professional. He knows his operation. I think Bond is he's pretty quick to trust in this story. He's quick to trust on two occasions. I suppose, first of all, he trusts M's judgment that Christados is indeed the man that, you know, he should be trusting. Well, M, is, M, M trusting Christados and having that, that in the background. Yeah. That's a very important reason why they had that scene with them too. It is. is 
because you want to reinforce that first thought of being trustworthy by the British and the CIA. So, but then again, that's almost like that's almost like saying right away that I guess if you look at it as the narrative as a whole, that he is not to be trusted, right? Yeah. So, yeah. No, the, that, and that's just part of the bigger misdirection that Fleming's playing with. And as we've already said, that's good stuff. Uh, okay. Yeah. You wanted to jump into the angle, so I'll let you start off with adversaries and allies. Yeah. Right. So. Adversaries, uh, obviously, Cristados, you know, smooth customer. He knows the trade. As I mentioned, it's easy to see why Bond sees him as an ally at first. He's a good villain. He's very complex. And, you know, like, uh, I kind of wish there was a bit more of him at the end of the story in, in that regard. Um, his last appearance is kind of brief. And, you know, and you don't really kind of fully realize his fate, only it's suggested in a way. So I, I would say I kind of would like a full resolution on him and maybe like a, a better standoff in the end. But at the same time, uh, he worked very well in the narrative, and you know, and that's that's how those things usually work out. Uh, as for allies, well, Columbo, uh, such a great character. Uh, r- like right away, you just like him. You know, it's only on several pages of the story. I mean, how many pages is he in? Ten pages is total, as he mentioned. And this, even this short story, he's one of the best ball- allies. You know, he's up there with like Karen Bay and Mathis. You know, um, Liesl Bomb, even though she's a girl, she's kind of an adversary or ally in this regard, too. She's a lot more intriguing and interesting than just being the simple Bond girl type. Um, we'll get to her stat- her eventual status, though, when we, when we get to the girl portion. Mm-hmm. So as a whole, I mean, Columbo, Cristados, Liesl, I thought even though there was a small cast of work here, uh, including M too, and the allies, I just found that they'd all work together reasonably well. And I, I gave actually allies and adversaries a five in this story. I did. I did too. I saw it exactly the same way as you did. And I think that the small cast for such a big story was really useful. And I, I liked the way that each of these men have their own little players beneath them. Like that whole uh, ballet-like uh, performance with the recorder and the chair at the, at, at the restaurant. You know, I, I liked all that yes. stuff. It felt like real espionage. It felt really cool, yes. like following that along. Columbo is up there, as you said, as one of the one of the best allies. He's up there for me with um, uh, Karim Bay. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like I really like. I'm thinking him. more of like uh, I totally visualize, you know, Topol in, in the film version at that character too, and he was it good. Works just so well, hey. He does, and I I kind of like him better now that I understand the source material for how he was how he was meant to be written, you know. Um, I watched Free Eyes Only last night actually, oh, cool. and I saw like all the threads that. We're taken from these short stories yeah, and put yeah. into the film version. And yeah, it's a great payoff. It is a good payoff. And I, I mean, this is just... A it makes st- you appreciate the movie even more, actually. Well, I, I'm going to have to see it again to re- refresh myself of all those touches. But this is just a story that you can tell Fleming is enjoying writing. Like when yes. when he's interested yeah, I, I in it, he's interested. I feel his enthusiasm. I feel that uh, he's like, this is just gritty, great spy stuff. And he's really enjoying it. Yeah. And very low-key, too, which what i like about it yeah okay so we're on the same page there in terms of narrative for me i thought the plot was really intriguing i thought the pacing of the writing was good the style was effective i like the flashback and i like how we kind of have these jump cuts um from one scene to another like after bond is hit on the head on the beach at the at lido you know he's, he's he wakes up on the columbina as you've already said i like the whole uh movement of the story it's it's effective it's it's not the best that we've seen from fleming but it's really good uh and so i didn't go top marks but a really solid four yep solid four for me taut gripping crime buster story you know you got that great italian backdrop fleming's love letter to venice mm-hmm. I- Mm-hmm. i agree with you i, I like those touches <laughs> i guess this is going into the locale a little bit but it is i just think 
<laughs> yeah, well, I guess it depends on your on your on your perspective, but yeah, I guess in that way. She she um, she was a pawn. She was interesting. Um, she did I her job. If her, death, but... if, if her death in the film version would have been better in the narrative, as mm, maybe I mean I... part of it, you know. I agree with what you said about the locations. I agree with most of what you say about Lizzo. I don't think she's quite as dynamic uh, or important because um, she is a, a plot device. Remember, I gave her a three. I gave her a three. I gave her three point five. The narrative, I gave a solid four. Lethal Bomb, I gave three point five. I think there was intriguing character, but there was no real backstory on her, and she was definitely a plot device in that regard. Going to locale. Um, as I mentioned, the love letter to Venice at the, uh, um, from that description I gave. The comparison to the kill, the locales were exciting and full of character. The Colin Bina was, was, was really well described. That the level, the saloon, you know, all the, the inner cab inside and all the men around there and laughing and Columbo and having the whole ambience and all that. Um, the doctor and Maria, you know, like, it was very well visualized in that way. So I gave, um, uh, and Okay, I disagree with you there on a couple of little points, most notably the fact that the uh, the Columbina, to me, wasn't described as much as I would like to have seen. Uh, I don't think that Rome was touched up particularly nicely either. Venice was definitely, uh, and I, I like that, but I just took a half point away and I went 4.5. All right, fair enough. Yeah, Rome could have had a bit more detail. I didn't even figure out they were in Rome until, like, halfway through the narrative, actually. All right. Well, um, it, it doesn't even mention at the beginning where they are. There's, there's some piazza or mm -hmm. some restaurant in Italy somewhere. It doesn't even say it's in Venice or Rome. Well, it does. Uh, there's enough reference to the piazza de Spagna, which is the you know the uh, Spanish yes, steps and all that stuff. Spanish steps. I miss. I miss. The, I miss the locational marker there. I guess. If I guess. Being a probably people at the time, you know, doing a lot of world traveling and whatnot, that would have been picked up a lot easier. But yeah, that's that, that, that's a good point. Uh, okay. Oh, Spanish steps, of course. I missed that. That's all right. Ugh, Don't I, punish anyway. yourself too much for that. <laughs> so I gave it five on the miles. Right. Four point five. I did. And what did I say? Sorry. No, no, that's right. That's exactly it. And for equipment, I gave a four, solid four. Uh, I really like the, um, the, the, the the use of guns. It was pretty good in this one. And I like the chair, as I've already said. Uh, yeah. thought that was really cool. Um, each of the characters here ha seems to use and have, you know, uh, um, kind of like a, a statement to make with fashion, you know, or kind of like accessories or something like that. Yeah, I, got, I agree. You got, the, you got the dope smuggle and the paper rolls too, don't forget. Um, and then you got like the grappling hooks that uh, Columbo and his men used to get into the uh, warehouse on the, on the jetty. So I thought that the, you know that was a cool touch as well. So I was I was four point five as a, um, with the um, with the equipment. I also like the use of the yellow umbrella, where to, you know to look forward to meet Liesel and the whole like uh, yeah that was field, that was cool uh, that was cool the mindful in the golf course they had on Lido Peninsula. That was kind of a cool touch as well. Did you think that the rolls of paper, uh, heroin? Um, or any connection to the Bowwater's rolls of paper in Moonmaker. I would like to have mentioned that Bowwater was like the front for smuggling heroin, but uh, <laughs> that would put some infamy on our own family a little bit. It would, more than a little bit. Um, <laughs> but it's still funny to think. It is. It's very funny to think. So I was 4.5 with the equipment uh, for uh, Risico. All right, cool. And that brings you to a, oh, this is quite a high mark for you. 22 for you on that one. Probably my favorite story of as a whole, so I, I guess uh, that makes sense. And twenty point five for me, so uh, also high up there. All right.
episode right. 13, Josh. Episode 13. Can you believe it? Well, hopefully 13 is a lucky number in our case. Hey, look, buddy. Um, we, we decided to call this episode uh, James Bond versus Snidely Whiplash because huh. his, his, foe, his foe in this story is um, Francisco Scaramanga. And although we're going to get into him, obviously, um, he does strike me as something of a railroad villain. He really, really does. Do you want to say anything about Dudley Do-Right? Does that work for James Bond? I guess Dudley Do-Right is James Bond when he's just had electroshock therapy and doesn't know really who he is or what he's doing anymore and makes makes ridiculous mistakes and tells BS lies to get out of uh, certain situations. Uh, so yeah, I guess yeah. that could be a Dudley Do-Right aspect. Um, if anything, du- Dudley Do-Right was saved by the cavalry in mostly almost every instance here, um, yeah. either by his own luck or simply by, you know, a certain uh, hook-handed CIA agent, so... <laughs> I'll speak for a few moments on the publication history and information of this, the final James Bond novel that we get from Ian Fleming, The Man with the Golden Gun. 1st of April, 1965, it was published by Jonathan Cape in the UK and August in 1965 in the United States. 80,000 pre-orders for the hardback edition of this book, and it was written a year earlier, about February 1964, in GoldenEye, Jamaica, where Fleming wrote all of his books. At this time, though, uh, Fleming's health was poor, as you'll know, and during the writing, his productivity dropped from about 2,000 words per day, which was his usual rate. Yeah, I, I read that it's, he wrote for about an hour a day. Yeah he, read, yeah, he wrote for about an hour a day. And it's funny, we'll talk about this when we get to the narrative, but life imitates art because Bond is also very weak and kind of lethargic in this story at parts two. Um, yes, and it's, you know, in some ways it works because it's fitting to the story. In other ways, it isn't. Fleming brought a completed first draft of this story to his editor, um, William Plummer, who edited... Plummer. Yeah, yeah. He, he edited uh, many of his novels. I was actually looking into the, his life a little bit, William Plummer, and he's done a lot of work. And I know that shouldn't, shouldn't really surprise me because he was a literary advisor to Jonathan Cape, but he was friends with a lot of writers and it wasn't just it wasn't just um fleming who kind of relied on him and to, to give an ear and advice so that huh. was pretty cool now i don't know the story here i wish i did and perhaps you'll be able to fill in some blanks when you share a bit more about his last few months or year next episode but Plummer told fleming that although and, and I mean, Fleming had reservations about the draft, right? As many writers do when they produce something and they send it yes. off to their friends. Plummer told Fleming that it didn't need much rewriting. And he was really the one that encouraged this publication through. Now, whether or not he felt as though Fleming was near the end of his days and he just wanted to give the author a sense of completion, maybe let's just push this one through, Ian, so that you can be alive when it comes out. I don't really know, but I find it hard to believe that, you know... All the editing team at Jonathan Cape weren't weren't convinced, and they were concerned enough to hand the manuscript over to Kingsley Amos to read. Yeah, and he took that away with him on a holiday of his, and, and none did nothing of, with it. Nothing was done. Yeah, like it's bizarre to me that like Plomer was really trying to push it. The publishing house itself wanted to get a second opinion, 
because obviously there were things that were coming up in this first draft that they weren't happy with. In the in the meantime, Fleming dies and passes away, so no rewrites on his part can be done, and none of the notes or suggestions by Amos after he comes back with the story were taken seriously enough, and, and it just goes to print. Um, you got any opinion on that? I was just going to say that it feels when I, I feel like I'm reading the first draft when I read The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah, well, it, it is. It, it feels... I noticed a lot of just some really awkward like syntaxes and and, and mm. stuff every now and then, you know, and mm. uh, and there was kind of like a almost like a an outline feel to some of the some to some of, of 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 the sections of the book, in my opinion. I'm not going to disagree with you. Um, I, I will say this though: that any criticism that we may brandish towards the text today, um, it's not necessarily. Fleming's fault. I mean, Fleming died, no. and and as we have the record, the record states and shows that Fleming wasn't happy with this draft. He did want more work done on it, and so yes. I think that the weaknesses of the story, we, which we have to be fair about ranking and the strengths, and we will score them each. But you know, Fleming, the author, had reservations, but was unable to to fix those up in his mind or on the page because of his death. The publishing house had reservations, but still went ahead and published the story because at that point it was a huge money mark, a money maker <clears throat> to run, you know, along with the oh, film, yeah. the film franchise as well. And I suppose um, all I just want to say is that it's tough when you're trying to, when you when you're trying to reflect upon a work that, you know, the author wasn't happy with, but I am very pleased that this is Fleming's work. Like, I'm glad that we're not having a discussion of a book that Fleming wrote and then someone else finished up because we would be yes. we'd be trying to figure it all out, right? Like, what yes. was this and what was that? So, okay, the book may have its weaknesses, it may have its faults, but it is Fleming's work, and I'm much I'm much happier that we've got a final James Bond novel written. Doesn't feel so much like the end of the character that I, you know no. I might have expected, but. It is at least a complete Fleming work. And yeah, sure, it's a first draft, but we have to give it that, you know, and we have to consider Oh, absolutely. That. We got to put that in consideration in our grading, yes. And believe me, I, I, I have put that in, into play. Um, I would even point out, Scott, that uh, I also felt, even though that is, it's the, we get kind of a, a complete novel, so to speak, from it, in, 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 in a way, a final novel from Fleming in this way, I felt also in many ways... It almost went full circle to the end of where Casino Royale sort of began with Vaughn as a character, hmm. and uh, as almost feels to me almost like a perfect conclusion in a way to the Fleming sweep, if you think about it, like the overall course of the books. And I will have you know is that I, I was reading recently that um, the Man with the Golden Gun was to be Fleming's last novel. That was his plan. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting what kind of rewrites would have come from it. It, it is, yes. There, there are big strokes, you know, like as we'll get into with the conclusion, there are big strokes that feel like this would be a conclusion, but you wonder how, how he fleshed those out or how he would have liked to flesh them out. Mm. Regardless, it went to publication and it did sell well. And I've got some reviews here that I'd like to share, a couple of familiar names and a couple of new ones. Oh, okay. So... Let's first hear then um, what Kingsley Amos thought of it, writing for the New Statesman at the time. And it's important to recognize that uh, Amos would um, be the first non-Fleming James Bond writer. He would come out and write a novel called um, Colonel Sun in a few years' time, 
under the um, under the name of Robert Markham, I think that was the name, Robert Markham. And of course, he also wrote the James Bond dossier, which is, as you know, a book of essays about character and uh, circumstance and culture that all pertain to Bond, his life. Um, less about Fleming and more about Bond as a literary construction. It's a really great companion piece to to have as we do a, a series like this. It's kind of like that book that Archer put out uh, all about, you know, how to be a cool secret agent spy and whatnot. Kind of. Yeah. But I, I kind of feel like um, Amos, Amos's book is, is very firmly entrenched within the context of, of its time. Yes. in 1968, yes. um, 1960, 65. Did he write it? it yeah. I think yeah. He wrote it in it, it's 65. not like a meta work. It's, it's an actual like That's right. analysis of, yeah. of, the, of, of, of what the novels are doing in popular culture at the time. And, and what they're conveying in that way. Yeah, and and I think it's a great defense of some of the criticism that once the films came onto the scene, Fleming's work itself took about its misogyny and the fact that Bond sleeps with all these women. I mean, Amos points out a lot of interesting things in this book, and one of them, and he he actually challenges um, the concept of the Byronic hero, and he kind of puts Bond positions Bond in that sort of that that sort of artistic compass and watch him float around a bit and, and and treats him with literary kindness i think as opposed to just looking at him as a member of you know this uh, cultural phenomenon <clears throat> and when the films came out it became more difficult to separate the literary bond from the filmic bond but one of the things that amos says and i found interesting was this idea of that you know bond has this <clears throat> universal reputation of being a big misogynist womanizer and like byron like like byron but well byron also liked the lads too so you know, let's let's not let's not go there but um <laughs> well i'm sure no I'm percy sure. shelley would, would agree <laughs> he would and bond does uh, on more than one occasion notice the uh, masculine looking bottoms of some of his leading ladies but that's true Nevertheless, amos defended bond's womanizing in saying that look bond is a bachelor he is a bachelor that travels the world by, you know, part and principle of his job. And he usually has one girl, a book, typically. Mm -hmm. typically. And there's one book or big adventure a year. For a bachelor who's traveling the world is one girl per year and one girl that he normally shows affection for in the story. We'll have to talk about this when we finish up our whole series here next time. But Bond doesn't really drop women. Like he might in the films. I don't find the literary Bond has... He's been cool and cold and he's been a little callous towards them. Certainly the way he refers to them um, when they're not around. But I've never felt as though Bond is abusive to women in the series. And I... No. I mean, he... Well, there have been moments where he's... He's... He's said things that have been abusive. But... And he's never really said them to to the girls themselves, if that makes sense. I don't know. Anyway, I'm getting I'm still getting off track because I haven't got to my fucking point yet. I'm sorry. Um, Amos is basically just saying, look, a guy, a bachelor uh, in the in the '60s, traveling the world, sleeping with one woman, is not really that crazy, you know. And no. And it's funny because I was listening to an archival. Um, sample of an interview that Fleming did with the BBC's Roy Plomley back in 1961 I believe and Fleming himself said that you know he doesn't buy or he's, he doesn't put much into the whole sadism and sexuality of his character because just like Amos said he's a man who sleeps with one woman per adventure and 
one adventure per year it's not really that out of league with what you would expect from you know a socializing man and there's even 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 like a, a ghost of a relationship that occurs too afterwards where she yeah. eventually like just leaves or something or moves on almost too yeah you're right anyway look that, that was a hell of a long diversion to say kingsley aimless knows what he's talking about when he talks about bond and fleming you you did that well well, here's his review of The Man with the Golden Gun, part of a review of The Man with the Golden Gun in The New Statesman. Uh, and for anybody who's unfortunate enough to tune into this episode <laughs> as their first one, uh, before we get into a review of the book, Josh and I, the BFG and Bowman, always go through publication history and we look at the newspapers and the dailies and, and what did they think of the text when it was first released. So Amos writes this, Sadly, empty tale empty of the interests and effects that, for better or worse, Fleming made his own, end quote. Um, our buddy Maurice Richardson, writing in The Observer, quote, Perhaps Ian Fleming was very tired when he wrote it. Perhaps he left it unrevised. This posthumous bond is a sadly substandard job. Isn't, of course, by any means totally unreadable, but it's depressingly far from the best bond, end quote. Critics are just going to be like, oh, I'll just tell it how it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just an opinion. It's not one we necessarily or ever do agree with. But Maurice Richardson, yeah. I have respected throughout this series because yeah, he's been a, a voice of consistent reason. And at least, at least he treats the story with respect as he, as he writes about it. Christopher Woodsworth, writing in The Guardian, the Observer's sister paper, quote, since Goldfinger, 007 has been toiling hopelessly in the wake of the zeitgeist. The distance between Live and Let Die, Ian Fleming's second and best, and You Only Live Twice, his last and worst, is a long, long, long iron down the sandwich fairway. Coming back to yeah. Goldfinger and the golf reference. Yeah, I would also say, too, sandwich is also where, is, is also where he had his heart attack and passed away. Oh, good shout. Um, the listener, William Trevor, writes this. Bond continues to behave with so little originality that neither Templar, Simon Templar of the Saint fame, Drummond, that's Hugh Bulldog Drummond, or Marlowe, Philip Marlowe, created by Chandler, as you know yeah. and have discussed, nor Nick Charles, Dashiell Hamnet, okay. would, would have paused to waste a pellet on him. This is a fantasy for grown-up children. Oof. Yeah, seems like uh, he's taken the place of uh, Boucher. Yeah, where is Boucher anyways? What's he doing? He's not writing reviews anymore. This is the second book now he hasn't written a review for. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, Time Magazine's reviewer Josh Anonymous, quote, It may have been just as well that Fleming died when everybody still thought he could do no wrong, end quote. Hmm. Associated Press, also with an anonymous writer. Bond and Fleming were fun. They entertained, sometimes mildly, often grandly, but always consistently. Life will be less interesting without them. That is a very um, past remarkable kind of, not past remarkable, sorry, um, ephemeral comment on the story there. It doesn't really say anything about the story, just that, oh, they're dead and they were fun. Sometimes good, sometimes really good, uh, but uh, we'll miss them. Oh, but the story you mean? Oh, no, no, I was a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Charles Poor writing in the New York Times. A gory, glittering saga. The G wizardry starts early and never flags. Really? Mm-hmm. 
And the National Review final one here, BFG, Anthony Lejeur. Undeniably slight, but like everything Fleming wrote, intensely readable. He irrevocably transformed the genre in which he worked, end quote. Again, not as much as a review, but more, again, an obituary, like, uh, retrospective on his career. Ah, yeah. Anyway, there you go. That's the publication history and some reviews. So, mostly negative reviews or kind of, not melancholy, if not a little, um, uh, well, what, mourning, I suppose, in terms of, you know, his best is gone, the writer's away, and this is what we're left with, which is an unfinished, could have been, really good story. But some yeah. pos- some positive spins in there as well, and we got to flesh it out because what you and I are going to do is something that neither of these reporters did, which is read it with a purpose for analysis, general readership, and decompartmentalizing it. So that's me done, buddy. Over to you with a plot summary of The Man with the Golden Gun. All right, The Man with the Golden Gun. And the superfluous third nipple. Uh, indeed, yes. And the sexual prowess that does continue into the films. Oh, yes, of course. But potentially homosexual. Potentially homosexual, indeed. So, we begin where we left off from You Only Live Twice. After being Kissy's amnesiac love slave slash patient slash baby daddy, Bond <laughs> notices the words Vladivostok on a ply of newspaper. So, naturally, this triggers some buried memories, and he leaves Kissy for Vladivostok, Maybe there was a Vlad? I don't know. After being declared dead to the world for almost two years, Bond resurfaces in England and tries to make contact with them. Having to go through MI6 screening procedures, naturally, his identity is confirmed and the meat is set. We learn that M's real name is Miles Masservy, and that even though Bond pretty much gives him the Manchurian candidate treatment to the point of declaring his love for world peace with a cyanide pistol to M's personage, um, uh, M is a pretty cool guy. And he gets a he has like a get smart like protective wall that comes down from the ceiling to protect yeah. him. I, I I did like that, but I was really feeling the Q branch influence of the films there. Yes, indeed. Or get smart. Yeah, um, or get smart. Yeah. But Bond is then taken away with some electroshock therapy and is right as rain. <clears throat> Not really. Um. Mm-hmm. So he, M wants to give Bond a chance to prove himself worthy to the old cause yet again. And sends him to Jamaica to deal with one Francisco Scaramanga, a Cuban hitman who brandishes a golden gun as his telltale sign. He's a Spanish um, hitman. I thought he was, yes, sorry, Spanish, uh, who was basically recruited by the Cuban government. Yes, yeah, sorry. Well, he's, yeah, the correction he's, he's, there. yeah, he works for all kinds of people. Yeah, he's Spanish. Uh, we have the whole background story of him being a real dead-eye shot in the circuses in Spain, and he ended up, um, an elephant got loose, and... They killed this beloved elephant of his, so he yeah, killed that a whole was, bunch of that because of that. Fucking crazy, that. Yeah, it's a little, it's a great, it's a little side stories like that. I think that give Fleming, you know, more consider. You want to give Fleming more consideration than you would other, you know, people in his genre. You know. Yeah, I don't disagree. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, even the, even the film, The Man with the Golden Gun, referenced that part too, which is also one of the better scenes of the movie as well. Really, I don't remember that. Yeah, when they're in Thailand watching the Muay Thai fights and he has a conversation with Scaramanga on the crowd. Oh, I do. That's they're right. Talking about, they're talking about the uh, peanuts and all that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, moving on. So, yeah, so we got to get this, this Spanish guy, this Spanish hitman who's been working with the American mobs, with the Cubans. 
and pretty much, you know, riddling MI6 agents with bullets. There's a big Deadpool of, of officers. It's also convenient, too, because if Bond kills this guy, then they get rid of Scaramanga. And B, if Bond dies, well, you know, that's just too bad. Um, we got rid of this monkey off our back. Yeah, exactly. Even though I think M is kind of probably leaning to the hope that he will win and prove himself out. But M also is also political and pragmatic enough to see the situation in, in that context. So, we're back in Jamaica. Yawn. Bond has managed to track down Scaramanga to a brothel on Three and a Half Lovers Lane in Savannah del Mar, a township outside of Kingston. He is partnered with the secretary to Agent Ross, who has gone AWOL in Trinidad, tracking down a lead on Scaramanga. The secretary, conveniently, is uh, his old secretary, Lilia Number 2, Mary Goodnight. Bond arrives in the town of Savannah del Mar and located, locating this prestigious establishment ran by the, a Jamaican local named Tiffy, who's a nice girl of the grackle-loving variety, um, he decides to scope the place out, you know, for any trace of Scaramanga. Meanwhile, the Grackles dance around on window and cackle and defecate for his amusement. Scaramanga sh- shows up after a roll in the hay with one of the girls and puts the big bad act on for Bond. And just and just to remind us of his utter, utter villainy, he kills the two Grackles. This leads to Tiffy placing some sort of curse on him down the road. Bond is Mark Hazard, has a bit of a dick measuring contest with Scaramanga. Mark Hazard being this, this alias that Bond puts on for himself. Yeah, it's a stupid, stupid name, but... <laughs> it really, really is. <laughs> Sounds like the name of some, like, B version of Bond is set in America or something like that. <laughs> Mark Hazard. Like, what was that movie in the, in, in the 80s? It was, like, Remo something and this... Yeah, Remo Williams. Remember that movie? I and it, not, there was like no. there, was, there was a famous cover of him, like, hanging from the Statue of Liberty or something like that. It's called Remo. I don't Williams. remember that, man. I don't look at remember. look at your '80s video store movie covers, man. You'll remember Remo Williams. Okay, I'll check it out. I'll check it out yeah. online. That's the kind of name. That's that's what the kind of name that Mark Hazard stirs in me. It's like Remo Williams. Um. Uh, yeah, <laughs> okay, so I see him now. I've just checked him online. Remo Williams. Yeah, I got him. Do you remember that movie now? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he reminds me of some, something between like Charles Bronson and Escape from New York and kind of like um, Jackie Chan, or who wouldn't be at the time, uh, JCVD. Yeah. And, With uh, a little bit of like um, bad actor's name, the guy who was in Little House on the Prairie. Um, Michael Condon? Langdon. Michael Landon. Landon, Landon, sorry. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. going back to Bond here. So yeah, him and Hazard have a bit of a Scaramanga and Hazard have a bit of a dick measuring contest. Um, but Scaramanga, who through no matter of seduction, you know Hemingway. What, sorry, you know Hemingway and Fitzgerald actually had a dick measuring contest. I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, what did whatever. Zelda think of that? Well, it was Zel- it was Zelda that told Fitzgerald that his penis was small, and he went and um, asked Hemingway. Oh, it's true, but it was. He asked Hemingway if he thought it was, and Hemingway took him into the bathroom of, I don't know, some place they were in Paris, I think, and um, told him that it's not that small. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, so that's a nice segue. Hemingway's a good guy, making his uh, fellow writer feel feel better. That's good. Uh, That's nice of him. Yeah, anyway. Such was not the intent of Scaramanga with Mark Hazard, however. (laughs) No. Yes, so with really with no manner of seduction whatsoever, he recruits Bond's Hazard as a point man on this hotel job he got going on down the road. 
Scaramanga sees this as almost a kidnapping, in my view. But Blonde of, of uh, you know, plays along as the ambitious hazard. The hotel in question is a tax write-off, not even, even even finished construction in several wings. We learn there's a small convention of hoods of the typical of the typical cliches about the uh, about going on, including Hendrix, an obvious KGB Swiss button man. Kind of reminds me of Stellan Skarsgård and Ronan. Um, where does this leave our hero? Pretty much acting as a bartender to the whole affair, actually. <laughs> Thank goodness for Bob, for, for Bob and all the hotel staff aren't who they seem to be. Dun, dun, dun. So, Felix Slater, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm just laughing. Okay. Felix Slater is back, hooking all, working as a porter for Scaramanga. <laughs> and, uh, as well as a CIA man named Nicholson. Using the recording equipment on his own key, and his own keen eyes and ears, we and Bond put together of some, put together some, he and Bond put together some plan to basically, um, we and Bond learn that Scaramanga and these hoods are putting together some plan to destabilize the economy of the Caribbean and as a whole America, using sugarcane fires, drug trafficking, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in a bargain basement specter fashion. But before further plans can be made to bring down these mafia and KGB cronies, one, a Vegas gangster named Ruby is gunned down by Scaramanga for being a bit too conservative in his ambitions. With this alone, uh, Leiter and Nicholson can indict these men, but Bond is still called to play MC at a literal hoedown, a Carmen Miranda bit that goes to naughty extremes that even the Boneyard wouldn't even consider. <laughs> with the men invested with all the girls and the music and the fun, Bond finds Mary Goodnight in his room, saying she was worried about him and that she had been telling him the whole time. Another testament to Bond's amazing espionage abilities in this novel, Quite. that Mary Goodnight could follow him around. Um <laughs> and I, I'm probably a lot of us when we when we, we have who's recently the films before when we think of Mary Goodnight we think of a god awful Brit Eklund in the film version. <laughs> I'm trying to separate the two characters, and all I got really so far is kind of a slightly more efficient or or better used money penny. Yeah, so he tells her that Ross, her bo- her boss, is dead. So she is saddened by this, and as he tells her, they're inside the bathroom of his suite. When they come out. Scaramanga is stand, standing there like a creepy bastard. Apparently, the closet door opens up to his quarters. Very similar to what we got, like in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, plus, he spends a lot of time talking in his bathroom, like he did in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. That's right. That's right. Yes, that's a good point. Bond tells a bullshit story, emphasis on that, about mm. Good Night and the, and the Situ, and Scaramanga tells her to scram. Scaramanga is getting suspicious, you guys. Meanwhile, the plot thickens. Hendrix has confirmed Hazard is in fact James Bond, and Scaramanga and he are forced to come up with a wild plan to kill him in a train accident, rather than, you know, shooting him in the face and throwing his body <laughs> to the gators out back. Yeah, they talk about it, though, and then they decide to drag him out. That's right, they talk about it. I guess they put the emphasis on they want to have fun with it, I suppose, for the boys and stuff. So and I I'll think Fleming, Fleming, you know... I think Fleming is also trying to have fun because in the 1930s, wasn't he involved in a train injury in Austria? And Yeah, that's right. He was, and, he, and, he was, and he's been scared of trains ever since. And they used a train in From Russia with Love and Diamonds Are Forever, and now we've got another one here in his last novel. So I think that there's, there's a comfort in going back to one of these frightening scenes for him. Yeah, I, I guess that's a way for, maybe it's a way for him to kind of comfort himself with, with his impending death, perhaps, that he's feeling is coming. Who knows? Yeah, or it's a knee-jerk reaction to "I need an easy drama scene," or that as well. Yes. Anyway, right. Sorry. Finish up, pal. 
so the Sugarcane Express rolls on out. Uh, <laughs> that, that the Sugarcane Express of tourist horror, and uh, yeah, they make it, it makes its way to the Green Island, the Green Island, the Green Island where the convention will party, party, party. After they deal with Bond, of course. So Bond and, and Scaramanga start having another measuring contest with their shooting skill when Bond notices a girl tied to the train tracks, snarly whiplash style. Yeah. Dudley Drew Wright, I mean uh, James Bond, <laughs> doff protest and a scuffle and a scuffle ensues. And by scuffle, I mean the visual of Goodnight being ran over by a train, severed head and all, and even if it is a dummy. Then Felix Leiter pulling out some Jason Bourne shit on Scaramanga and his crew. But in all the chaos, a winged Scaramanga manages to get off the train and Bond pursues. Now, when I say winged Scaramanga, I'm not actually <laughs> suggesting that he developed wings and then flew <laughs> off the train. Just wanted to make that clear. I'm using the term as winged as in like being hit in the arm or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. Even though in the man with the golden gun, they take that to the maybe they took the winged aspect too strong and have his car actually fly. That was crazy. So Felix bails as well, knowing full well that the bridge ahead is rigged to collapse with a wing with uh, the surviving attendees of the Hood Convention on board. Boom, pew pew. So Bond pursues the wounded Scaramanga through the jungle, finally watching him from the bushes collapse against a tree and kill a boa with his knife and start to eat it. Bond pursues the Bond figures this is a good time to catch Scaramanga at a loss, and Scaramanga accepts it without much kicking and screaming. His request for prayer comes out of nowhere, though, and maybe mm -hmm. just recently, electrically shocked Bond manages to buy this ploy? Regardless, the last confession is a blasphemy, as Scaramanga reveals his <laughs> other golden gun. No, that's not a Freudian metaphor, a golden derringer. With this quote-unquote pussified shooting instrument, Scaramanga takes a chunk off Bond, who, though wounded, empties his chamber into the charge of Scaramanga, generously bestowing him with a plethora of extra nipples. <laughs> So Bond recovers, and all is good in the world. He doesn't want to be tied to a lady anymore. Him and Felix are still old chums. The government covers everything up. Medals are offered. It's like the end of A New Hope. Goodnight is, is going to join a long list of disappointed women. Oh, and the Queen is offering him a knighthood. But Bond's too badass for that. Not to mention the rational, comfortable Scots isn't for the limelight. Well done. That was your, best, uh, that was your best plot summary of the entire series. Thank you. Thank you. So you, you definitely saved the best for last. I did, I did. It was a good book to, to do something like that on, though, in my It opinion, was. So. It was very frivolous and very enjoyable and very humorous. And as we said at the beginning, poking fun at the story, um, we're not poking fun at Fleming necessarily because he didn't get a chance to finish this the way he wanted. So This is for your entertainment, folks. This is for your entertainment. Because <laughs> if we can't have fun with it, then... You know, there's there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of point of even reviewing this story, but uh, yeah, well done. Okay, so you want to explain the angle, Josh? Yeah, the angles. So once again, we got adversaries and allies. We got our narrative. We got our our uh, girl. We got our locations, and then we got our equipment. A N G L E. A N G L E. And we give each of these features a mark out of five, which helps us get a scoring index for each novel that we've been doing. And at the end of this, we're going to have our complete ranking of all of the James Bond written by Fleming stories. And that will then lead us and encourage us into our final ranking. The index scoring isn't necessarily the, the top books in some sort of sequential order, but the index gives us uh, a step in that direction. And uh, yeah, so let's just launch into it, Josh. Um...
we'll have a chat about allies and adversaries. All right. We've got um, <clears throat> Mary Goodnight, who is an ally here in the story. We've got Felix Leiter, who comes back. Uh, we've got Tiffy, uh, who's kind of like an ally and works kind of front of house in that whorehouse in Savannah Lamar. But I feel like she respects Bond and, and tries to give him tries to give him some advice about Scaramanga and about how to get on. And I think she takes his fancy or I think she fancies him a bit as well. Probably. And who else we got in terms of allies? We've got M, kind of. And we have um, the good old... Bill, Bill Tanner, Chief of Staff as well. He has Bill Tanner comes too. back, yeah. And we've got the good old um, Dr. Uh, Moloney. Yeah, Moloney, that's right. The who's neurologist. Made three appearances now in the Bond story. Yes. In the Bond series. Well, Bond's a bit of a, of a head case, so he's, he I guess he's necessary to the plot in those instances. I'll give you my two cents on the allies. I thought Mary Goodnight was was pretty, as an ally, not as the Bond girl, but as an ally, just not really fleshed out fully. As you said, how it is that she comes to be in Jamaica quite conveniently, Bond's own secretary, and how he has no idea of that. I mean, him having no idea of it, I guess, is a little more believable because he had been KGB brainwashed. Um, yes. But... No, he would still have figured it out after his convalescence. He would still have been aware of the fact that she's there, but he was really surprised to see her. So, I mean, I'm thinking that's a first draft problem, but... Oh, for sure. Goodnight doesn't offer anything, really, in terms of uh, great help or advice. I can't think of anything she gives or does for him. She raises suspicions more than kind of subdues them. Would you agree? And dangers his situation at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, basically, she didn't do much for me. Felix Leiter, great to have Felix back. You know I love Felix Leiter, but he is pigeonholed in here so bizarrely. It's almost like Fleming's tiredness is really visible here in his decision to just revive him so quickly, almost like a you know, almost like a a transporter in Star Trek. He's just appears here he is in the hotel. Like how can he <laughs> Yeah, beams like, down. How many how many different um criminal investigations is the CIA working on in not just the Caribbean and its American interests, but in America itself. And, oh, Felix Leiter happens to be at the same developing hotel site that Bond is. Like it, The way he gets there, it's not serendipity. It's and, and, I mean, speaking of serendipity, we can talk about that when we get to the story, but Bond's just hanging around the airport terminal and he finds or intercepts Scaramanga's messages. Like, that. that's just a little silly, too, but that's getting off track. Yeah, I'll, I'll just finish up here. Um, allies, Tiffy, she's pretty interesting. I thought she was okay, but she only has about seven or eight pages in the story. I would really have liked, um, <clears throat> I would really have liked a little bit more from Scaramanga himself. I thought that his first appearance was just awesome. Um, yeah. I want to I, I read it if you're cool with that. Yep. Um, I am. I'm moving on to adversaries now, but it's all part of our A. Okay, right. So here's the um, the first appearance, and you mentioned it in your summary that he ends up shooting those those two birds those two grackles which i, I kind of like this scene though i think this is pretty cool pretty good writing <clears throat> anyway oh no no wait, no it, it was one of the better scenes for sure i agree yeah. bond had been sitting with his chin propped on his right hand he now dropped the hand to the counter and sat back the walter ppk inside the waistband of his trousers to the left of his flat stomach signaled its presence to his skin the fingers of his right hand curled slightly ready to receive its butt he moved his left foot off the rail of the stool onto the floor. He said, that'd be fine. 
He unbuttoned his coat with his left hand and then, with the same hand, took out his handkerchief and wiped his face with it. It always gets extra hot around six before the undertaker's wind has started to blow. Mister, the undertaker's right here. You care to feel his wind? Bond turned his head slowly. Dusk had crept into the big room and all he could see was a pale, tall outline. The man was carrying a suitcase. He put it down on the floor and came forward. He must have been wearing rubber-soled shoes for his feet made no sound. Tiffy moved nervously behind the counter and a switch clicked. Half a dozen low-voltage bulbs came to life in rusty brackets around the walls. Bond said easily, You made me jump. Scaramanga came up and leaned against the counter. The description in records was exact, but it had not caught the cat-like menace of the big man, the extreme breadth of the shoulders and the narrow waist or the cold immobility of the eyes that now examined Bond with an expression of aloof disinterest. He was wearing a well-cut single-breasted tan suit and correspondent shoes in brown and white. Instead of a tie, he wore a high stock and white silk secured by a gold pin the shape of a miniature pistol. There should have been something theatrical about the get-up, but perhaps because of the man's fine figure, there wasn't. He said, I sometimes make him dance, then I shoot their feet off. There was no trace of a foreign accent underneath the American. Bond said, that sounds rather drastic. What do you do it for? The last time it was $5,000. Seems like you don't know who I am. Didn't the cool cat tell you? Bond glanced at Tiffy. She was standing very still, her hands by her sides. The knuckles were white. Bond said, why would she? Why would I want to know? There was a quick flash of gold. The small black hole looked directly at Bond's navel. Because of this... What are you doing here, stranger? Kind of a coincidence finding a city slicker at three and a half, or Sablamar for that matter. Not by any chance from the police, or any kind of their friends. Comrade, Bond raised his hands in mock surrender. He lowered them and turned to Tiffy. Who is this man? A one-man takeover bid for Jamaica, or a refugee from a circus? Ask him what he'd like to drink. Whoever he is, it was a good act. James Bond knew that he had very nearly pulled the trigger of a gun, hit a gunman in his vanity. He had a quick vision of himself writhing on the floor, his right hand without the power to reach for his own weapon. Tiffy's pretty face was no longer pretty, though. It was a taut skull. She stared at James Bond. Her mouth opened, but no sound came from the gaping lips. She liked him, and she knew he was dead. The clinklings, Joe and May, smelled the same electricity. With a tremendous din of metallic squawks, they fled for the open window like black thieves escaping into the night. The explosions from the Colt 45 were deafening. The two birds disintegrated against the violet black drop of the dusk the scraps of feathers and pink flesh blasting out of the yellow light of the cafe into the limbo of the deserted street like shrapnel. There was a moment of deafening silence. James Bond didn't move. He sat where he was, waiting for the tension of the deed to relax. It didn't. With an inarticulate scream that was half a filthy word, Tiffy took Bond's bottle of red stripe off the counter and clumsily flung it. There came a distant crash of glass from the back of the room. Then, having made her puny gesture, Tiffy fell to her knees behind the counter and went into sobbing hysterics. So that's <clears throat> Scaramanga's first appearance in the novel. And although it's a first draft, I really like the way he swaggers in as if he owns not just the joint, which he clearly does, but like the schoolyard bully that inspired him, uh, the character, he completely goes on the aggressive. And clearly this is a man who gets what he wants by intimidation. I, I like this. I like the way Fleming describes not just Scaramanga, but his re, his um, behavior within that environment. I think this is a good scene. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. No, it was very well set up and actually got me really excited for what was to come. And then I found the, the portrayal of Scaramanga kind of went downhill from there. 
Well, yes, it, it did in some ways. Um, I don't... I don't think it was the portrayal of Scaramanga more so. I think to me it was more of the... How he was used in the storyline, I think he was sort of misused. And while I did like, you know, the duel at the end, that whole sequence at the end of the novel, I found that in the meantime, I just, I, I don't know, I just didn't buy him in some of the scenarios that, that he was in, you know, a, after this particular entry. Hmm. Well, some of them are outlandish. I mean, <clears throat> I would like to have had Scaramanga more, I suppose... Okay, I'm just gonna be quick here. I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna keep it out much more. But Scaramanga's first appearance is great. I like the idea of Bond going after a hitman. I like the idea of it just being a story about a hitman. I don't have a problem yes. with that. I like that. We we saw this work really well in some of the short stories that we've read. Well, uh, for your eyes only and Risico. Well, not so much Risico. For your eyes only was a little more like this. Um, yeah, I I, I kind of agree. I, I kind of wish it was just him kind of just pursuing Scaramanga and that's it. But we get this whole middle story of this this. As I said, his bargain basement specter operation going on, mm. and I just didn't find that as as compelling. No, it wasn't. Raising the price of sugar to help Cuba, um, or for, help his employer, I suppose, over the rest of the the, the Caribbean is it's it's a lame angle to have as a criminal. Um, I mean, it's it's probably very believable given the Bay of Pigs and given you know the, the relationships and the opportunities for uh, subterfuge and for capitalist entrepreneurial you know, gain during the sixties. I mean, I mean, there's obviously something very timely going on here in the story, but I just find it really lame for a villain and why bond doesn't even a brainwashed or recovering bond, why he doesn't just shoot the guy. Like, I don't get it, but we'll talk about that when we get the narrative. Um, Scaramanga is Snidely Whiplash. He is over-the-top, thin mustache, a very good dresser. Now, Snidely wasn't necessarily a good dresser, but he did, he did, you know, rock a Trilby hat. He looked pretty good in his hats and, I think that um, Scaramanga eh, <clears throat> wasn't properly developed, but it was a badass move eating a snake at the end. We'll get to that, but I thought that was pretty damn cool. Um, yeah. I was I was interested with Hendrix, and I felt that you know this KGB agent who works in the Hood Convention and is obviously trying to um, he, he's trying to secure um, uh, kind of like a, a financial line for the Russians here in the story. Yes. I I liked him, but if he was the big bad instead of Scaramanga, I get the feeling that Bond would have been treated a hell of a lot differently. He would have been killed a lot earlier. And, oh, yes. But of course, you know, Hendrix is dull. He's without much charisma or character, so he doesn't have the stage presence of a villain. And that's very deliberate, I think, on Fleming's part. He doesn't want to have another character upstage Scaramanga who is so over the top and flamboyant. Um, He's a shrewd, calculating, suspicious, far more intelligent character, but, you know, he's he's nothing really more than just a sick diplomat. And uh, I mean that, I suppose, with no respect. Um, he's not really a diplomat. He's a, he's a crook, but he's plain diplomacy. And yes, I reckon, you know... I, I gave I gave the uh, Adversaries and Allies of Mark three, okay, because I thought it was middling. Um, and a three, I think, reflects what's actually in the book. A redraft, because I think there's a great blueprint here for Scaramanga, and particularly for Hendrix. I would like to have seen an extra 30, 40 pages with some interplay there between Bond and Hendrix. Um, but Bond is, you know, he's a fucking secretary in this story, and that's ridiculous for its own. And Goldfinger did the same thing. He used Bond as a secretary. But that's right. It's a little weird in both cases, but anyway... 
Yeah, kind of, kind of similar. Kind of, kind of, kind of similar scenarios in their own way too. But again, you have, you have a guy with gold in his name. He, he has a meeting with a bunch of hoods trying to convince him about something, you know. And Bond is and Bond has a secretarial duties. And and this is the thing, right? Scaramanga may have coordinated this, but Scaramanga isn't actually above bigger than any of these hoods that he's working with. He's just kind of like. Uh, He's kind of like the guy who coordinated the poker game, but he's not actually that much bigger than him. He doesn't hold much intimidation over, although he kills one of the guys at the um, the table. These other men aren't really afraid of him in quite the same way. Yeah, it's not like in Diamonds of Forever where there's a guy who was kind of pulling the puppet strings or Goldfinger having great control over these men. He's just one of them. And it would have been nice to see a henchman in this story, but we don't really get a henchman. No. And I think but that's that... where I think it's makes proof it where the story kind of went off the rails a little bit, in my opinion. Right. Well, anyway, look, I'm done. I, I went three for adversaries and allies. Um, to say more about it, I think, is unnecessary. So over to you. Oh, yeah. So allies. Well, I, I'm kind of – I say I'm in the same boat as you are when it came to this category. Um, as much as I found Felix was shoehorned in here, what he did do when he wasn't there was entertaining enough for me. And, you know, and that whole scene with him in the train was pretty awesome. I got to admit that. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, that was pretty fun in a, in a kind of macabre way. Um, uh, T- Tiffy could have had some development, I kind of think, uh, that she would have been a more interesting character. Again, we're dealing with a lot of potential here. Like, we don't know what a final draft would have been like, you know? Yeah. Um, then we're also dealing with uh, Mary Goodnight, who really doesn't do much to the story whatsoever. It's just, just provide a familiar face for Bond, and that's it, you know, like on the British side of things. M, you know, uh, he has a small part in this in this story, but he was still the M that we know from the previous books, and still trying to give Bond another chance and stuff. So we do still see that relationship consider continue. Mm-hmm. I even like Muddy Penny in this story too, like her reactions to something's wrong with Bond, something's not right, and her being really upset about it. You know, like I found that very engaging, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of ties the whole thing of almost like. Tanner and M and Bond and all those people together as their own kind of like, I don't know, like their own kind of like team, you know? Yeah, I'll, I'll say more about that when we get to the narrative, but I don't disagree with you. Yeah. Uh, the CIA, Nicholson, uh, he wasn't really a character per se. Adversaries and allies. Hendrix, as I said, was kind of a cold fish, but somewhat interesting. I wanted to learn more about. And, uh, you know, his fate was pretty apt. Uh, Scaramanga himself, a uh, larger-than-life kind of character, I found um, really intimidating at first, and I was hoping he would just be kind of like a badass, you know, all the way through, someone you could really like and mm-hmm. kind of get, get get into as a villain. But then I found him, but the way that he was written in his dialogue just came off like a like a cheap crook, you know? And Yes, he is. I agree with you. He's, he's not developed... Uh, I, I, I'm lacking words, man, but I, I don't think he's big enough to be a a villain in a story like this. Let me just tell you this. Unless you're in, like, the Wild West, anytime someone calls me feller outside (laughs) of that context, I do not take them seriously as the villain. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I think think Fleming has a Jones for Edward, like, I don't know, like, Edward G. Robinson, James Cagney gangster talk. Well, maybe that's a circus thing. Maybe that's could like be. a maybe it's a Carney thing. It could be a Carney thing, perhaps. Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, um, but what, it, about, what about? I was supposed. 
I, like, I was surprised that he didn't have, like, a Spanish accent or they didn't convey him as that way. And he would use, like, Spanish swear words or something like that, you know? I, I thought they could have done a lot more fleshing out with his character in that respect. Yeah, I know. And it, it is kind of weird, isn't it? Because a man who is so well-known, you know, there's a file on him, right, as his hitman. Yet he seems to uh, assimilate to the culture that he's dealing with in terms of his accent being American. Like, why wouldn't he, if he wears outlandish clothes and if he's not shy about brandishing his weapons, like, why not stick to his sound? You know, why not keep the accent? Yeah. But maybe, maybe he didn't have the accent. Maybe the accent was lost or I can't remember the file at the beginning, the big info drop we get, but um, maybe he lost his of, accent. Possibly. I, I kind of felt like, you know, like with this badass accent, I could picture kind of, you know, like Ricardo Montalban, you know, in the role, you know, like he would have been awesome. He might have been, yeah. At least they got the midget from Fantasy Island in the, uh, you know, in the Man to Go the Gun. I guess that's something. That's true. <laughs> they got the knickknack. Knickknack guy, yeah, exactly. Anyway, not so... Con, not Khan himself, but they got Knickknack anyway. Uh-huh, yeah. Who Roger Moore related as being like a really... Um, pretty hideous womanizer like he would have different women screwing them all the time oh who are uh, her her Velches? yeah apparently they have roger moore in his in his autobiography or his biography yeah his autobiography he tells stories on the set and how he was like a horrible womanizer <laughs> anyway it's he's like he's, he's almost like uh the Tyrion lannister of his time <laughs> yeah kind of right so keep <laughs> keep going with your with your a so moving forward um yeah, the other uh, Hendrix that I mentioned, the other the other villains were pretty much your stock villains. So I'm just kind of as a whole, I, I'm in the same boat as you. I'm I, I'm a three with adversary and allies. Okay, well let's move on to N then narrative. Um, I'll go I'll go first, and again I'm just going to put this out here. Obvious weaknesses, as it does read like an exercise of serendipity like this happens oh great then this happens oh awesome i you know first i find his letter and then i find him at the house and then he gives me a job and i mean as soon as bond found him he's licensed to kill like it's it's disappointing that it's disappointing that he doesn't kill him or that we don't get more of fleming explaining why he doesn't and i think this yeah, is like, where the first draft really comes through like if if this is a bond who's still recovering psychologically and getting back on his feet and figuring himself out again that's fine man but it would have been nice to have had that. And I don't necessarily fault Fleming for it because he died and maybe he wanted to do that. But that for me is the weakness. There are some aspects of the story though, Josh, that I think it would be unfair not to call out because I think they're excellent and they carry some real good momentum. Um, particularly for me, the opening and Bond's assassination attempt. This is yes. an obvious, this is a standout episode of what I consider to be pretty developed and effective writing. It offers... Yes. It offers answers, actually, if you think about it. It offers answers to questions that we had from You Only Live Twice and gives closure to the whole Blofeld chapter in, in, a, in a way that isn't perfect, but at least it's passable. And I felt like there was more closure here in this story for the whole Blofeld episode <laughs> than there was for when Blofeld died. And, I, you know, I appreciate that. Fleming's heart probably, you know, wasn't, wasn't really into this story, but he certainly seems interested in doing this beginning, this opening, this hook, because it's as good as anything we get in the Bond novels, I think. I really like the beginning. It's taut. It's full of kind of curious character writing, like you said, with Moneypenny recognizing that there's, there's something wrong with 007. He has odd behavior. And even the reader is kind of guessing what's going on. Like, I suspected yeah. that he was 
I did suspect that he was brainwashed, but I hadn't really put it all together. Um, I also really liked the Savannah Lamar stuff. Uh, I thought this was pretty inspired writing. We've we've yes. criticized Fleming in the past for kind of being complacent when it comes to Jamaica because he knows it so well and he doesn't write it as nicely as he did in the early 50s with Live and Let Die. He kind of just relies on his um, his experience to get him through. But I felt like the Savannah Lamar stuff was really nicely written and carefully positioned. Um, I felt like this was a section that he was trying hard in. I love all this stuff. The the bits I read, the Scaramanga, um, <clears throat> the whorehouse, the 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 interplay with Tiffy and the crackles. I like that stuff. Um, the climax on the train. I'm going to agree with you there too. I thought that structurally, this was a cool way to end the adventure in, in that you know end the mission at least. The mangrove swamp, good action, and in fact, the mangrove swamps are really nicely described throughout. Bond hired as a bodyguard, however, uh, as a watcher, is unbelievable. It's a lame ploy. It's a waste of his pedigree, for one thing. And yes. it's already something that he's tried with Goldfinger. It didn't really work there. It's definitely not going to work in a novel that isn't as good as Goldfinger. The sugar stock plot isn't gripping. It's dull, political, and very much of the time. The like taxation said. and trade routes is just dull. Yes. Well, look at Star Wars, right? Like, when it did all that stuff in Attack of the Clones, it was terrible, or whatever, those stupid prequels. And here we get similar chat. Like, I don't care about any of this stuff. It isn't interesting. And Bond is bored shitless sitting outside the room just waiting for his next drink. Like, it might be a Jamaican issue that Fleming wanted to, to kind of pigeonhole in there but you know maybe something more interesting could have come out of it but you know go to one of these fields that he's burning and put bond in a burning sugar field and make him escape from it you know like that would have been cooler but he doesn't do that anyway at least bond doesn't need to care about that you know and that's the thing i guess he doesn't have to care about the sugar plot it's he just finds scaramanga within the environment that's working this kind of a plot and so it isn't important to the story it just kind of sucks that we don't get more interplay between Bond and Scaramanga. And I'm sure Fleming wanted to give us more so that we had more. But uh, just just continuing on, dude. Um, Scaramanga's hubris, narratively, is just so ridiculous that it's actually incredible he ever made it beyond the circus. Like, that there, he wouldn't have at one point met a bully bigger than himself before he had guns. You know, like... Yes. A second draft might have helped Fleming give a little more dimension to Scaramanga, but he's just really a a rather unilateral, arrogant, egotistical, lucky shot. And I think Bond's reluctance to shoot or to take his opportunities when they appear is a sign that he isn't at his best. And so maybe Fleming's or trying to play a, Yeah, maybe Fleming's trying to play a bit of contrast there. He's trying to introduce but never had a chance to develop this this oppositional factor in Bond's life that right now he's still timid about holding the gun and shooting. And in fact, we get a lot of references in the story to Bond's hand moving automatically to his to his thigh or to his waist to collect a gun and Scaramanga just always brandishing the gun. So I think there might be something sophisticated Fleming wanted to do here in terms of characterizing these guys as opposites, but never had a chance to stylistically weave. Um... I also think that the fact that Bond isn't at his best reinforces M's decision to send him on a likely-to-die mission. Like, And I like that part of the story, too. M knows that he's going to win either way, because if letting this agent who tried to kill him is gaining uh, criticism from his opponents, then M sends him on a mission where he either dies on the job, solved the problem, or he returns successful and M has proved right for trusting him. So either way, M wins by sending Bond on this on this mission. 
Yeah, it's um, a win-win scenario. It is, yeah. And Bond's decision to humbly refuse the Queen's honor at the end, I thought, as ridiculous as its inclusion, at least it was dealt with believably. Like, it yes. made sense. It made sense for the character. Re- like Bond doesn't want to be signing autographs and going to press rackets and representing Britain at uh, dinner parties and all that stuff. He wants to be able to have his private life, and I think that's well explained there. Yes. Um, what else have I got? Uh, yeah, you mentioned this in your summary, and I'd like to read this bit, uh, if, if you don't mind. I know I've been talking for a few minutes, but I'm going to shut up real quick. Um, 178 in my book is where Bond grants Scaramanga's prayer. This is really unconvincing. It doesn't fit with Bond's behavior elsewhere in the series, and it doesn't really even fit with Bond in his psychosis in this novel. I just, I just want to read it. Dramatically, I felt like it's kind of gimmicky. Like, we know that he's going to end up getting hurt because we see this like Casino Royale from Russia with love. You, you only live twice. The man with the golden gun and Dr. No kind of should have been with the Kraken, but it wasn't. These are all examples of stories that end with bond in serious convalescence. We know that the minute he says to Scaramanga, yeah, okay, that Scaramanga is going to fucking shoot him. Like we know that. And yeah. I felt it was kind of, kind of a gimmick, but anyway, I'll just, I'll just read the bit out. Scaramanga held up the held up a hand. For the first time, his face showed emotion. This is when he's dying in the mangrove swamp. Yeah. Okay, feller. The voice amazingly supplicated. I'm a Catholic, see? Just let me say my last prayer, okay? It won't take long, then you can blaze away. Every man's gotta die sometime. You're a fine guy, as guys go. It's the luck of the game. If my bullet had been an inch, maybe two inches to the right, it'd be you that's dead in place of, in place of me, right? Can I say my prayer, mister? James Bond lowered his gun. He'd give the man a few minutes. He knew he couldn't give him more. Pain and heat and hunger and thirst. It wouldn't be long before he lay down himself right there on the hard cracked mud just to rest. If someone wanted to kill him, they could. He said, and the words came out slowly, tiredly. Go ahead, Scaramanga. One minute only. Thanks, pal. Scaramanga's head went up to his hand went up to his face and covered his eyes. There came a drone of Latin which went on and on. But Bond stood there in the sunshine, his gun lowered, watching Scaramanga, but at the same time not watching him. The edge of his focus dulled by the pain and the heat and the hypnotic litany that came from behind the, sh- the shuttered face and horror of what Bond was going to have to do in one minute, perhaps two. The fingers of Scaramanga's right hand crawled imperceptibly sideways across his face, inch by inch, centimeter by centimeter. They got to his ear and stopped. The drone of the Latin prayer never altered its slow, lulling tempo. And then the hand leaped behind the head and the tiny golden derringer roared and James Bond spun round as if he had taken a right to the jaw and crashed to the ground. And of course he, he succeeds in killing him after that, but mm-hmm. I, I just didn't, I felt like that was an unnecessary gimmick, even for Fleming who was writing a first draft. Like I would have been disappointed if that was a second draft ending. I loved the way that scene started though. It was awesome with Scaramanga leaning up against the trunk of the tree, eating a snake with his knife. Like that's cool shit. And Bond, yeah. you know, stuck through the mangrove swamp. I love what the environment is doing for the narrative, but that that idea of just letting him prayer like it, it didn't make sense. We don't we just don't see that benevolence in Bond elsewhere in the series and I find it hard to believe that an agent who okay, whatever side of the brainwash he's on whether he's KGB trying to kill M or whether he's British again trying to kill Scaramanga, I don't see either edge being benevolent. You know what I mean? No. Like it, it just doesn't fit. So all of this aside, buddy, I still think that there are flashes of real dynamic style here. There are some really there nicely are. written story parts. Like It's clearly a first draft that had promise. Um, but the story blows. And, um, you know, how much... How much can I blame Fleming for dying? Of course not. 
but the story still blows. And although I love certain parts of it, it's kind of meh. And yeah. for, that, for that reason, I'm going to um, credibly, I think, go with a mark of 2.5, which is just passable. It's a passable story with beautiful flashes of nice writing and some real touches to what we've seen before. But it's also full of holes and oubliettes that are predictable and disappointing for a character and a story that's supposed to be the last one we saw. Uh, yeah, so even as a first draft, I'm still going 2.5. I appreciate your patience there and letting me run through that. Um, now it's your turn. Narrative. Well, what is there left to say? I mean, it's, sorry, it's sorry. Really, not, no, not at all. Not at all. I think you covered the points better. And, you know, the fact that we're getting our points out about these books uh, eloquently in any way, whether it's me or you, uh, most of the time you, uh, it just feels, you know, that's where that's mission accomplished. And I think we have to look at it again as this is not a fully complete book. Yes. I mean, we are stuck with this non-fully complete book and we still have to criticize it regardless as a novel. So I'm in the same boat as you. I did initially have two as my choice for the narrative on this because I found the narrative very weak as a whole. I did like the beginning aspect. Sorry, I did like the beginning sequence of him as a him as a as a brainwashed agent and trying to kill M and the suspense of all that whole section. Yeah, it was cool. The three and a half lovers laid sequence was particularly inspired. Uh, the the atmosphere, the tension of that that old that, that scene, uh, just the, the little details were just perfect. Like something that you would see like in a really well shot film. You know what I mean? And then you go on to like as you said, the trade the, the trade ride sequence is really it's fantastic. Um, I, I I while I wasn't a huge fan of the prayer sequence, I did like the idea of like the second golden gun and like the, the little derringer. You know, like I kind of found that kind of cool. And the mangrove swab thing with this eating the snake, uh, all of that, that was very well done. Uh, but again, I, I agree with I agree with you that the prayer aspect was just could you I could, you could have wrote he could have wrote in a paragraph how how he, he could have got the drop on Bond some somehow you know like like a sleeve in his arm like a like a like a sleeve device or something where the derringer pops out you know like hmm. he does have hidden knives doesn't he so it's not impossible he could have done that. Yeah, and all of a sudden the Derringer pops in and shot him. Like I don't know, I I think that would it would have been something more of, of Scaramanga's style, in my opinion. Instead of a prayer, it's just just it's just so BS. I, I have so again, I'm in the same field as you in that in that respect. So I will give a two point five as well. All right. Well, we still ha we haven't found any disagreement yet. Uh, maybe we will with girls. Go ahead. Well. As we mentioned before, Mary Goodnight, she doesn't really add anything to the story. She doesn't detract from the story, though. It's someone that, that narratively you could rely on for helping Bond out get out of certain situations, and it seems like a, a, a constructive device in, in, in that way. Yes. Um, but she seems as the tacked-on Bond girl of, of the story, basically. Like, So he's convalescing again, and she's there, and then she wants to make them a home-cooked meal as he convalesces, and then there's a there's hints of a relationship that's going to happen there, and Bond is, is finally regret regarding you know what I'm just going to enjoy this and then move on. That's pretty much his thoughts on Very Good Night, <laughs> as our titular girl of the story. 
Yeah, she she of doesn't. The angle, I I, she, I, sh- I should say she doesn't add much, as you rightly no. identify. And I remember we were talking. You only live twice, and I, I made a comment about Good Night there that it was nicer to see her with a little more active role. And I felt as though this was Fleming getting ready to give her even more in this story. And maybe he was. Maybe he wanted her to be more effective. Um, But there isn't even the seedling of her effectiveness in this story, which I find find that it's still, even if Fleming had to finish this off, if this was our first draft and he was going to do some rewrites, I still don't feel like there's even a germination point here for her to to blossom into something more because she doesn't do anything. She's just a bit of eye candy. She's in Bond's dreams, but those are just lustful dreams of him under a mosquito net boning her. Um, there's nothing here that would make you say, wow, she, she, she could have turned into a real good girl in a proper revised, edited book. Yeah, no, I agree. I almost found that, like, the whole, you know, whole thing about, about Money Penny being so concerned for him, you know, at the beginning... It would almost be kind of interesting if Buddy Petty had decided to go down there, you know what I mean, against Eb's orders just to help him out. Yeah, that, that would have been cool. What about um, Mabel and Pearl, the Chinese beauty at um, the hotel, dancers at the dinner? Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe, Mabel and Pearl, I mean, they seem like they could have gone somewhere as characters. but <laughs> I bet they did. Yeah, I bet they wanted to. Uh <laughs> There, what, what, what was really to like about them? There wasn't really any kind of faucets of personality besides, like, poor showgirls reduced to strippers, basically. One of the songs that they sing um, and they perform is a song called Belly Lick. And Bond says, don't give me any of the light lyrics. Like, basically, at this point in the story, Scaramanga is telling Bond that he needs to get the music happening properly because it, the show is fine. It's just this Calypso band doing their thing, but it's not really sultry enough. And so... It's almost like they reach a certain point in the night where things just have to be ramped up. And Bond just goes up and basically tells these girls, um, acting as Mark Hazard, the uh, the hired hands, that they need to, along with, the, sorry, the, and the band leader, that he needs to kind of step it up and get the girls undressed and shit like that. And it's a little uncomfortable reading this bit. Um, and the song Belly Lick, apparently, is, I tried to find a copy of it, but I couldn't find one. I found a couple, but I'm not convinced that they're the ones Fleming was referencing. I think Fleming was referencing an earlier uh, kind of Calypso dirty song with some pretty dirty lyrics. But one of the songs that they perform um, during this Hoods convention and uh, the first night of party when Mabel and Pearl get all naked and and the the thing with the thumb, there's this big seated thumb that comes out. It's it's crazy. But one of them is called the Linstead Market. And I thought it would be cool to play this. So um, this is the type of music that Fleming was listening to at the time. And this indeed, the song Linstead Market performed here, uh, featured in the story. Lord, 
So in the milder moments of the evening, you have to imagine this song being played by the band as Bond uh, is serving drinks and basically being a stooge. Being a stooge, that's exactly the way to describe it. I Now, Tiffy, I think, has some good potential as a character in, like a, in a final draft, in my opinion. I think Tiffy would have been... That whole thing which you said about Arnigo, speak to this man down the road and I'll take care of Scaramanga for good... I wanted to see something come out of that. I just thought that would have been some kind of really kind of neat ace in the hole that could have occurred out of nowhere. Like Bond about to be killed, and then a whole bunch of like Rastafarians with like with like <laughs> with like with, with 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 machetes like show up and cause shit on the train or something like that. But Dude, unfortunately, yeah. Fleming pretty yeah. much villainized the Rastafarians with the whole train driver see guy in, on the on the uh, train anyways. Yeah, and how all they want to do is smoke weed. I mean, I, obviously that's part of their you and know, eat part sugar of the cane, thing, but. Yeah, and sugar and eat and, sugar and, cane because have rotten teeth. Yeah, anyway, exactly. look, I I, I want to come back to something you just said. I think that Tiffy was a total ace in the hole. She should have and could have been an awesome Bond girl. She could have been awesome. Yeah, like if she was the girl who became in this story the one that Bond kind of gets into, and if she were more of a victim of Scaramanga than just afraid of him, he could have. I mean, she would still probably have been a little bit useless the way solitaire was in the film version or and the book version of you know live and let die but if she was more of a kept woman i think that would have been cool oh i agree yeah yeah so other than that and mabel and pearl and good night yeah. and money penny uh i don't know i'm kind of going with two oh, for tiffy i'll give it 2.5 for girls for t- okay so you went 2.5 for girls did you yes i did well, I went uh, two for girls. Okay. I went two for girls. Um, partly, I guess I was uncomfortable that they were forced to be naked. Yes. Whereas the girls in yes. Harlem, the girls in Harlem felt more like they wanted to be doing all that stuff. And I guess that sort of servitude side of things. Um, no, I, I, I don't think uh, I wasn't comfortable really. No. Over, overly comfortable reading that stuff. So I don't know. It it, it wasn't necessary. Let's move on then and talk locations. I felt as though the, the effect that Savannah Lamar and that the, the whole quarter has on him is, is, I think, is pretty good. Like, it comes across well. Like, Bond doesn't feel comfortable here. And when that first red stripe beer shows up in front of him, I think he's quite relieved that he can kind of settle his nerves a bit because this is obviously the place where he's hoping to rendezvous um, with Scaramanga, but... It feels kind of ghostly. It almost feels like American Gothic. And I don't use that term lightly, but, you know, you've got a lot of natural features that seem decrepit. And there's a lot of kind of, well, there's just a lot of spiritude about the place. I like yes. it. Um, the whorehouse itself is a really great interior space that's, that's rendered for us. It's, uh, you know, it's got a sidebar, a parlor, visiting right birds I thought were really cool as well. Hey. They They've got... Uh, they got a real character in the scene. Um, and the window above the bar is kind of like a short order cook's view into the kitchen with a curtain to separate different parts. Like I, I really like this stuff. Fleming's thought about what he wants to include here. It's not willy-nilly. And it works. It really works for me. The mangrove swamps are beautifully described. Um, 
the heat, the claustrophobia, all of that works well. And I think in a second draft, the locations could have really been worked more thematically to link yes. with a man, with a guy who's got psychological problems and you know he's feeling swamped in his own mind. He's he's not sure of his skills anymore. He knows who yes. he is, but I think there could have been a lot of stuff connecting there uh, stylistically. The mangrove swamps also, for me, foreshadowed the end scene. Like you, you get the smell of the mangroves at the beginning and throughout when the open windows are in the hotel room, and they obviously play out importantly because that's where the the climax happens. Um, it's just good. I mean, the local flavor I feel is working here in Jamaica in a way that it wasn't. The hotel sucks. The hotel Thunderbird is lame, despite some exciting stuff that happens there. Like even even Fleming describes it as being dull. So he's not really given himself a chance to care about it. But um, there's some nice stuff here. But for me personally, uh, not enough for a four. I went 3.5. And most of that 3.5, I'm telling you, has come from Savannah Lamar and the Mangrove Swamp. So I might have been a little generous there. But I'm, I'm not disappointed with being where I am. It's just what's done within those spaces. So I can't really fault it much more than 3.5. That's my personal opinion. Okay. I went with three. Um, Savannah Del Mar definitely was the highlight for me. Um, and also the mangrove swamps, as you mentioned. Uh, the Th- Hotel Thunderbird didn't really add anything to the story. It didn't make me capture No, anything. it really didn't. Um, I wanted to hear more about, like, why, like, go into the back and show the woods at the gator swamps or something like that. Or have, like, Bod follow them out and watch them dub Ruby's body into the swamp and the, and the, and the gators coming out, you know? Like, like something. Yeah. Describe to us why the dichotomy uh, is so important in the storyline. Show us the, the sugarcane fires going on in the background as Bod is driving through the countryside. Yeah. Show, you know, like that aspect of the culture, you know? I More really of the shanty towns. Yeah, that's right. Draft, I think with the third final draft that Flemmy could have really showed Bod out of his wits by springing him to a familiar place like Jamaica and making it seem almost like a nightmare for him that he's not used to, you know? And I think it also would have shown. Potential in, in there. It also would have shown Fleming, I mean, it, w- it wouldn't have been a love letter to Jamaica at all, but it w- certainly would have shown him as a more, as a more observant writer, maybe, of that, that, that he, wasn't, he wasn't just compartmentalizing the tourism of Jamaica, but he was actually trying to comment on it in a sophisticated way by, by showing its, its ugliness. And he might have started, as you say, to do that here in the draft with the sugar wars and all that type of stuff, but um, we just don't get enough of it. You're absolutely right. And that, I think, is the main issue, I think, with almost every section of our angle with this is that you don't get enough of it, so you can't yeah. really make a judgment. But yet again, we have to here. And I think three is where I'm going to, I'm going to sit when it comes to location. Um, the mangrove swamp, the um, Savannah Del Mar, the whorehouse within, the whole train ride. I thought the, the uh, train was kind of its own location in its own way as well. Oh, it was, um, yeah. The train and, definitely you know, the, was. Yeah, like you know how he described the, the train ride and the birds flying by, and then you have like the uh, the bridge up ahead. Um, I thought all that atmosphere was all well put together, and this and this and the setting for the mangrove swamp was laid before us so well. Hmm. So I would say as a whole, three when it comes to location. All right, I'll just go quickly through the equipment from my point of view. I felt as though this film, re- oh, sorry, this film, this book is really showing evidence and Fleming is maybe relying, uh, I won't say as a crutch, but I think he's very conscious of his audience now and he needs to include more equipment. The golden gun itself is something that does translate onto film very well. Um, the poison gun, 
issued by the KGB at the beginning that's featured, along with M's glass shield that you mentioned, the Q branch thing. Bond's Walther gets talked about more than it's actually used here in the story, but... Um, you know, we've also got hidden microphones going on. We've got the espionage work of the CIA. Bond's cover as Mark Hazard, which is very lame, but is still something that we're seeing in the films uh, more and more. The equipment is passable here, but um, with the exception of the golden gun and the dummy, and I, for some reason, the dummy of... Um, like, I'm trying to get this in my head, right? Scaramanga tells, uh, tells Felix Leiter's character who's incognito to go put mary goodnight on the tracks and then he rigs up a dummy to do the snidely whiplash thing and when scaramanga sees it he gets all overjoyed and hornified and you know gets all excited and even when it's clearly a dummy that's been run over although bond does say he doesn't need to decapitate a body so he doesn't quite understand it at once but i mean did you include the dummy in your equipment I was thinking about it, and I didn't. But now that, but uh, I think it's a it's a good addition in there, just just because of like it was a plot piece that was used. Um, again, Mary Goodnight, she wasn't even there as her character; it was just a dummy of her. So it's not really much difference, I suppose. Uh, you know, her usefulness in the storyline, um, but her the whole purpose of that her following Bond to the hotel was to set up that trade sequence so that Scaramago would know that that girl was associated with Bond. Yeah. So he tells this lower-level crony that he hardly knows, uh, which wasn't really described how how Lighter was managed to get himself into Scaramanga's... No, no not at all. Like, I think some dialogue between Scaramanga and Lighter would, 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 would have been, you know, useful to show how he got into that organization in the first place. You know, like, show him... Describe how he was able to, like, infiltrate the gang and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. That was kind of weak, in my opinion. Um, and again, yeah, this reliance on the films, I think, with more and more gadgetry, Q-Branch, as you said, uh, is definitely showing, and uh, I don't know if there's a crutch, but he's definitely using it. I mean, even the film ver- the book version for Rush With Love had, like, Grant's, like, dub-dub gun book or whatever, right? And that wasn't even in the movies. Oh, yeah, so, that's right. Which I, which I found really took me out of that scene in comparison to, like, the one that was in the film. Good show. So... Um, the whole idea of, you know, like the cyanide gas gun, and then you have the, the plastic protection barrier that comes down to protect M, and then you have the dummy, and then you have, uh, I'm trying to think of any other devices in the storyline after those. I can't really. No, there really think isn't. One. There's, there's not no, much. No, there really isn't. No. So the dummy, I guess, is the closest thing you get to a. Uh, equipment, I guess, in the later part of the, of the story. Mm-hmm. You got Flemmy, you got uh, Scaramanga's Golden Colt. And then you got his little derringer, and you got his knives. So you know, I guess that that's equipment to some kind, and definitely makes him a lethal customer. And and you know, on top of like the alligator snakeskin boots that he has, um, I guess that adds to his menace a little bit. He is part animal. I mean, eating the snake, I think, is the snake itself at the end isn't isn't an equipment as such, but it is helpful in characterizing Scaramanga as a survivor, and I like that. And I think more could have been done with that later, but. Um, anyway, not, neither. I mean, I went 2-5 on equipment just to be kind because I thought it was okay, and some of the stuff kept me interested. 2-5 is a, is a fair is a fair mark, and uh, yeah, I'm going for. Uh, but uh, overall, like I really liked the uh, the the, 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 cyanide pist- the cyanide pistol, and the the the, uh, the kind of like the get smart kind of device. I thought that was kind of neat in a little way, and 
I can see Eb using that practically, and it kind of shows that you know he he does take those things seriously in that way. So he's more than just pragmatic; he's also, I guess, sensible, and he's aware of the growing world of espionage gadgetry. Um, um, you know, and it's kind of I think to me it, it just illustrates in a narrative in a narrative view the the world building of uh, MI6 in this world and how more and more and more and more like they're getting more elaborate in terms of their espionage abilities. So um, as a whole, I think I give, I'll give equipment a three actually. All right, cool. So let's just tally up the scores here, pal. Uh, for the man with the golden gun, you've got a three for, <clears throat> we're both threes on our, adversaries and allies we're both 2.5s on our narratives uh we've got a two for me on uh girls a 2.5 from you a 3.5 from locations for me a three for you 2.5 for equipment for me and a three for you and that means bfg that uh i'm a 13.5 and you are even there you are a 14 Right, buddy. Look, this has been this has been fun. Any closing remarks on the Man with the Golden Gun, Fleming's last full, if first draft, James Bond novel? It just really didn't tweak my uh, nipples, uh, both my natural ones or my uh, superfluous third one. So you didn't find it titillating? I didn't find it titillating. No, as Roger Moore would say. Bummer. Um, bummer. Not not even that. Um, not even uh, pearls danced around the. Um, that, that big black hand. Yeah, the big black fascist hand thing. I, yeah, I don't know what that was about at all. There's some things I'm just shaking my head at and just kind of just going like, whatever. Whatever.